Um, you know, the, the, the Beamer ball era has officially uh, begun. Sunday was a big day in your argument. Cam Pringle, talked to a good Clemson buddy of mine yesterday, a Clemson insider, if you will. Uh, he accuses me of being a Gamecock insider. I deny it. I accuse him of being a Clemson insider. He denies it. Uh, we're both lying. Um, but, but anyway, he said yesterday that for the first time since Steve Spurrier left South Carolina, the Gamecocks got a player that was number one on their board. Okay. Uh, offensive lineman. I mean, all these teams have boards, you know, needs, uh, players, the matchups of needs and players got a big board somewhere in tiger nation, a big board somewhere in Gamecock nation, big board somewhere in sooner nation. And it has players. And it has priority position. Um, you know, how many offensive linemen will we sign this class? How many quarterbacks will we sign this class? How many wide receivers will we sign um, this class? You get down to a certain point, you're waiting on a kid or two or three. And um, what well, I mean, we need a wide receiver, but he's the best player available. Well, the Gamecocks have, since Will Muschamp gotten there, um, not taken a player that Clemson really wanted. I mean, an in-state or a local player, let's say a regional player, that the Tigers really wanted more in state than not, but but if, if if Clemson wanted the best offensive lineman in South Carolina, they got him. If they didn't, in other words, if they were going to sign four offensive linemen in this recruiting class, and there was two from Georgia, one from Florida, one from North Carolina, and they were all more highly regarded, or they had them on their board higher than um than Cam Pringle from Woodland High School, um, they just pass on the in state player. So the Gamecocks ran around saying, we're dominating the state of South Carolina in recruiting. Well, the reason you were dominating the state of South Carolina in recruiting, Clemson had found better players in other states. Um, I don't know that that's the way I would do it, but it's the way Clemson did it. They began recruiting nationally. They were a nationally elite program. You know, as I said, were. were. Uh, they began, <laughs> I'm trying to egg them on a little I bit noticed. Uh, this morning. Take a slight jab this morning. But my Clemson friend said that they really wanted Cam Pringle. I mean, he was number one on their board, a list of offensive linemen that they wanted to sign. He was number one on their board, number one on Georgia's board, number one on South Carolina's board. Um, the consensus is he's the number one offensive tackle in high school football. Um, you could divide him and have, you know, two defensive backs. I think he's six <laughs> seven, three 335 pounds in high school. He's a biggin', is what we like to say. But, um, but when you talk about the talent gap and the talent disparity, and how do you close the gap? Well, the way you close the gap is you start winning some of the head, you know, the head-to-head recruiting battles. And the Gamecocks have won uh, for the first time in a long time a head-to-head recruiting battle with their um, with their in-state rival. Now, when Spurrier was here, it was Clowney, Lattimore, Gilmore, um, you know, some of the uh, noted players in South Carolina, and they won their fair share. I mean, they won more than their fair share of in-state battles, elite players in the state of South Carolina, but they went a long period of time. They would get the best defensive lineman in South Carolina, and they would like you know, take that Clemson, and Clemson would say he was number six on our board. You know, the number one D lineman in South Carolina was number six on the Clemson board. They had one in Georgia, one in Florida, one in Alabama, one in wherever, and um, and they would um, you know, they would recruit nationally. They're still recruiting nationally, but Cam Pringle's a national recruit. So you know, if you're out there wondering. Okay, what is step one in closing the talent gap? I said it after the Clemson-Carolina game this year. Um, Clemson's a better football team than South Carolina, but not by miles. 
you know, up until a couple of years ago, I mean, the talent gap was, uh, there was a lot of disparity there. Clemson was a, you know, nationally elite program on the, uh, on the level of Georgia, Alabama. It seems to me, with all due respect to Tiger Nation, they've, you know, recessed or regressed a little bit, not much, but a little bit. They aren't quite elite. They're still very good, just not elite um, in certain positions in particular. And I don't want to break it down that much. I'd bore you to death. Wide receiver, um, offensive line. Uh, anyway, um, the, the Gamecocks on the field in Death Valley this past November kind of looked like they belonged. You know, they, they didn't look outclassed. They didn't look like, wow, who is this team that, that thinks they belong on the field with this other team? And when you win an in-state recruiting battle for an elite talent, and, and both in-state colleges have that kid number one on their board, that's a step in the right direction. I mean, that's not – I mean, it, it doesn't close the deal. It doesn't say, hey, here come the Gamecocks with a five-game winning streak over Clemson by any stretch of the imagination. Well, it shows you can compete in the but recruiting it, it, game. It, it gets you valuable. I mean, it gets you at, you know, um, is that kid signing with South Carolina going go to put the Gamecocks in the, uh, in the, in the, in the 14 playoff? No, no, not at all. But it does take a, a large step in the positive direction when you win a, um, a head-to-head recruiting battle with a team that has been, for the past decade, one of the elite programs in all of America. And then Georgia had him number one on their board. So what do you make of one recruit? My Clemson friend seems to say, there's a lot to this. I mean, he's not a sunshine pumper. He drinks he drinks the orange Kool-Aid. He loves the Tigers, but he's not a sunshine pumper. He'll call, you know, things as he sees things. And he says that um, I mean, th- th- there's a common belief, Rev. It's kind of interesting. Um, when, when, when Dabo got to Clemson, there were people like me who didn't laugh, but we joked about the silliness. You know, every day can't be the 4th of July. Th- th- there didn't look like greatness in that team, but he stuck to it. You know, and he, he got ridiculed at some degree or to some degree by some of the uh, outlandish things or perceived to, to be outlandish things he said. But the joke's on everybody else. I mean, the, um, the storyline speaks for itself and how good Clemson's been for, what, 10 or 12 years is, um, is only passed by uh, Georgia now. Got two. Clemson's got two. Alabama would have been the elite program, having won, what, about every other year up until the past um, couple of years. But anyway, it's just kind of an interesting mm-hmm. – um, it's not a one-off. I mean, it's not winning a recruiting battle for a kid that both teams wanted. It's changing the culture. It's creating a um, a vibrancy within that you believe um, in- increases the likelihood that they could win another recruiting battle, two or three, against their arch-rival, in-state rival, who has, you know, won about every recruiting battle there is um, in the state of South Carolina. In other words, if there, if there were a top 100 player in South Carolina, Clemson really wanted him, they got him. And Cam Pringle changes that. Yeah, now you, you start winning those battles and maybe and you win you start, more than you lose, and then you, all of a sudden you'll, you'll look more on. competitive on the field. That's right. Uh, you'll wake up one day and say, wow, we can play. I like uh, We can play with that crowd. 843-661-0937. Hey, I have a sports-related uh, topic before okay. we move on to politics, if you will. And it's not really sports. It's it's kind of sports broadcasting. You remember a couple of years ago, and this, this, is, this is referring to the Braves and the Braves broadcast. When the uh, on-field reporter Kelsey Wingard, who we were fans of, she left. Or I think you were fans of. I don't. I don't know who you're talking about. Well, yeah. but continue. Okay. You and Kato. You do. 
Anyway, when we kind of made fun of, were critical of her replacement on the TV broadcast for Braves. If you watch a lot of Braves, you know who we're talking about. Kelsey Wingert was a fan favorite. Okay, she was. One was prettier than the other. <laughs> I don't know about That's that. That's what it is, Freehold. I don't know about that. Okay. Well, rumors started flying yesterday that Chip Carey's gone. He's going to St. Louis okay. to take the play-by-play job. Again, for for longtime Braves viewers, he's been, I think, the, the main lead play-by-play guy on TV for 15 years for the Braves. So I realize things always change. Uh, you know, we've lost some of our, our big players the last couple of years and your broadcast team changes, does it change your feeling about watching your broadcast? I mean, if you, if you spend as many days as I do watching Braves baseball, and then all of a sudden, you know, it starts a couple of years ago with Freddie being a, a team leader. He's gone. Dansby Swanson's gone this year. Uh, Kelsey Wingard, if you, like, if you pay attention to the reporting, she was gone a couple of years ago. Chip Carey, if he leaves. And so I've not seen anything official, but this rumor has been flying uh, as of the last couple of days. I mean, at, at what point does it seem, I mean, change is inevitable. It always is. But at what point does it start feeling uncomfortably different? Well, I mean, okay, think of it this way. Um, Liberty Media owns the Braves. Liberty Media probably cares less about the culture of the organization that is the Atlanta Braves. You're not going to like this when I say it. Being the play-by-play broadcaster for the St. Louis Cardinals is a better job than being the play-by-play broadcaster for the Atlanta Braves. Say what? St. Louis is probably one of the top two or three fan bases in America. I mean, the Braves have a I mean, the Braves have a decent enough. Atlanta's not a great sports town, Riff. It's just not. It's a um, it's an Antifa-ridden town right now. But it's, <laughs> <laughs> I'll no, tell you this, true. I mean, it, it would be lucrative to be in Atlanta and replacing windshields about now or storefronts. Sad, but I mean, true. if you're in the glass business, that there's a lucrative future in Atlanta – but but Atlanta's just not one of the um one of the hotbeds of sports. It's just not. I mean, it's in the South. It's kind of the gathering place for it's it's where the SEC and ACC converge. You got Georgia Tech, which is an ACC school. You got the SEC championship game. Um, when you think of SEC, ACC, I mean, I think of Greensboro because I'm dating myself now. The ACC basketball tournament back in the day. I think of Charlotte being kind of the epicenter of the SEC, excuse me, the ACC. I look at Atlanta and Birmingham as kind of the SEC epicenters. But but I think when you look at the Braves, they're I mean they're not in no man's land. The Braves have drawn uh, some degree of support amongst the Southerners. But Southerners are college. I mean, we tend to support the college teams more than we do uh, the pro teams. Look, look at, I mean, I'll give the Braves credit. I do believe this, and I think Freehold will vouch for this. Other than the Braves, there's not a single team the South rallies around. But it's not Atlanta. You know what I mean? It's not um, families go on vacation from South Carolina, North Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Florida. Um, In the summertime, they go to Atlanta to take in a weekend of Braves baseball. But day in, day out, the residents of Atlanta don't support the Braves like the residents of St. Louis, the, the Eagles fans of Philadelphia. I mean, I can't imagine how rabid Philadelphia will be this week waiting for an NFC championship game. And, and I and I go back to this intimacy that those cities have with those franchises, and I don't think Atlanta has that intimacy. So if Chip Carey's thinking about going to St. Louis, he's going to take one of the three or four best play-by-play jobs in all of baseball. I would argue the Yankees, the Dodgers, the Cubs, and the Cardinals probably are the best jobs in all of Major League Baseball. And Kerry may have um, decided it's time to move on. Nothing's forever. 
But I think the um the generic nature, uh, not generic, that's the wrong word. The um the distant nature of which Liberty Media runs the Braves would prohibit it from ever being a rival to St. Louis or the Cubs or the Dodgers. Now, Freeho and Ted Turner owned it. I mean, it would have been different. There was a perception that there was local buy-in. That there were, I mean, people in Atlanta couldn't wait to pull and cheer for for their Braves. But I would argue the Braves are more of a Southern team than they are a city's team. I don't live in Atlanta. I mean, I don't know what what the city of Atlanta is like, you know, on a Braves day or a Braves playoff series. But I think I know what Chicago's like when the Cubs are there. I think I know what St. Louis is like when the Cardinals are there. Um, L.A. would probably be different. I mean, it's the land of Hollywood stars. You know, L.A. would be a little bit different, ritzy and glamorous and the Lakers and a lot of other things. But the Dodgers have been a, um, I don't know about now, but they were a family-owned team. The O'Malley's owned the Dodgers forever and a day, and they invested in that culture. Frio, you were going to jump in here and say something? Yeah, so do you think, considering Atlanta's a pretty decent-sized market, it's not too much bigger than Boston Philly, I mean, it's... It's not too, like I'm saying, not too much bigger. It's not around the same size. But is it just cultural? Because if you go to Philly or Boston, you walk down the street, you're wearing a Red Sox fan, uh, hat. You're in um, Philly. You're wearing a Philly's hat or an Eagles fan. So why is that? Is I, it just cultural? I think it's a lot. I think Atlanta has been a place where people who want to move south move. I mean, you know, it's got a huge African-American population. I mean, it does. It's got a huge African, as, as a percentage of what the South cities normally look like. I mean, Atlanta is far more African-American than most other cities. Um, I, I go back to the story I told about the movie I saw, and I was thinking about the Eagles. Um, there, there's a scene in the movie, and I can't think the name of the movie, but there's a scene in the movie that a father who worked at a factory in Philadelphia, and he was talking about when the, when the scabs played and when the lockouts and the, and the strike happened in the NFL, and his father was so distraught about the NFL not having regular players. And his son was talking about a game in 1977. And he told his dad it was only a catch. And he said, son, that catch kept me motivated in that plant for 20 years, waiting for the next catch from the Phillies. I mean, from the uh, from the Eagles will keep me, you know, um, the Steelers. I mean, Steel Town USA. I just think there are, I mean, I don't think I understand it because I'm a Southern boy. I mean, I grew up in a very rural setting. It was Gamecocks and Tigers, as far as I'm concerned. But I do believe that there's a deep sense of connection. I mean, it's past loyalty. It's past fandom. I mean, there's a, there's a connection and an ownership in some of these cities and that they that they have with their um with their professional sports team. And, and I think St. Louis, to your point, Rev, Chip Carey probably perceives. I mean, he's a smart guy, very capable person. I think he looks at Atlanta and says, wow, I mean, this has been a good job and a good run, but but it's not like St. Louis. I mean, if you go to the Cardinals and you're the play-by-play man for the St. Louis Cardinals, you, you, you just decide of walking on water. You know what I mean? Yeah, with a, that's true. And I think it's cultural. I think if you go to – I mean, I, I've never been to an Eagles game in Philadelphia. I don't know what that's like. I've never gone to a Yankees game in New York or a, or a Red Sox game in Boston or a Dodgers. Well, I mean, I think L.A.'s a little bit like Atlanta. You know, I think I think people go to the Braves game to see who else is there. I think people go to the Eagles game to watch their Eagles. I think they go to the uh, to the Packer games to watch their Green Bay, their Green Bay Packers. And I do think, I mean, I think college towns are like that. I think Clemson and Auburn. I mean, they remind me one of another college town, USA. Um, the one thing I've gathered from having spent some time in Columbia in politics, Columbia is a Gamecock town. 
I mean, there's no doubt about it. It's got state government. It's got a lot of other amenities that, you know, state capitals have. But but I'll tell you, when you're there on a football weekend or, or a, a, a run in the World Series during baseball season, I mean, it's, it's I, don't, I don't say it's exclusively a college town, but there is rampant support of Gamecock. I mean, you got the rooster crowing on the top of the W-L-O-L-O building. Um, and I've always said this about college towns, and I think Philadelphia is a college town. They just happen to pull for a sports team. <laughs> I think Pittsburgh's a college town. I think there are similarities in Auburn, Clemson. Um, this, this, I mean, they're bigger. I mean, Philadelphia is obviously a bigger town than Auburn or Clemson. I think, you know, Pittsburgh is obviously a bigger town. Green Bay uh, might not be <laughs> in Green Bay. But, uh, but you see where I'm headed. I think there's this, um, this connection that some of these cities have with their franchises that others don't. And I think, I mean, I, I'm giving you a long-winded answer about Chip Carey. I don't have any idea why Chip Carey left. Probably money, the honest truth. I would say. But, but I think if you're a play-by-play guy. That's the answer, right? Yeah. It, yeah what's the question? Right. Um, but I think if you're a play-by-play guy in, uh, in sports, period, you want a better job. And I think if you've got a list somewhere about the better jobs in baseball, give me a better job in broadcasting in Major League Baseball than being the play-by-play announcer for the St. Louis Cardinals. I mean, you're going to be hard-pressed. Maybe the Red Sox, probably the Yankees, outside of those, two, maybe the Cubs, but outside of those three teams, give me a better job in broadcasting. I mean, the best job would be owner, you know, of the well, Boston yeah. Red Sox or owner of the Cubs because that means you're living, you know, slightly above average means. But, um, but yeah, but it, it does, I mean, it does uh, change the vibe of the Atlanta Braves because Chip Carey's been a fixture there, his father. You know, Skip Carey was a part of the Braves. But if you go back to Harry Carey, I mean, he cut his teeth at St. Louis. Um, he actually, I mean, here's the old story. You know the old story about Harry Carey? He was having an affair with Augustine Bush's wife. And Bush <laughs> ran him out of town. That's how he ended he up in Chicago. Chicago. <laughs> I mean, that's the story. I don't have any idea if it's true or not. But that's the story I've always heard as somebody who um, enjoys sports, has always been drawn and attracted to sports. The old story is... That um that Harry Carey was running around with Augustine Bush's well what is it, Augustine Bush the second or third or whatever generation came along and um you know instead of getting stampeded with Clydesdales he decided to get get the hell out of town <laughs> find him another gig because yeah, the last thing you need to do is run around with the boss's wife right I mean that that's just yeah you're you're asking for termination of employment if you go down that road but um but Harry Carey was probably drinking and, a lot and during things that. come full circle then with chip maybe going to st louis yeah so and we'll that's see. kind of when you said when you told me that i immediately thought of harry Carey. you know beginning his career with the st louis cardinals i mean his, his fandom excuse me his fame came as a result of being the play-by-play uh, voice of the chicago cubs and when he famously in the seventh inning harry would drink i mean he wouldn't drink the first three innings but about the fourth inning he would start drinking and and by the seventh inning, it wasn't Sammy Sosa anymore. It was Thomas Sosa. That's right. <laughs> Am I right? And and he would sing "Take Me Out to oh, the Ball yeah. Game." Oh yeah, and he'd mumble the words yeah. and slur the words. And Thomas uh, yeah, Sosa coming to the. <laughs> and then somebody would take him home, and he'd do it again uh, the next day. Eight four three six six one zero nine. Change is inevitable. Yeah, I guess. Change is inevitable. Change, I guess, is um. In your case, not such a good thing and today for Carey, the Braves. He, he gets roasted pretty good on social media, and there's people that just don't like him, don't like his style, think he's he's boring, he repeats the well, same. they think he's granddaddy's boy. 
idea. I mean, there, there's some of that. I mean, yeah, you know, Skip and, and Harry and then Jim. Hey, when is when is enough carries enough? You know what I mean? <laughs> or, or, you know, is that the birthright? You get to be a play-by-play. Uh, but I'm just going the record. I like him, and I've enjoyed him calling Braves. And if he does end up going to uh, St. Louis, I'll be sad. Huh? Fair enough. For what it's worth. Take a break. Back in a minute. Let's go back to the debate we had a bit yesterday, and we've actually had it for the last week or so. Um if I'm not mistaken, could be mistaken, if I'm not mistaken, there will be some announcements today regarding the Trump South Carolina presidential steering team, uh, the statewide leadership team, uh, the co-chairs of the, the Trump for president uh, in 2024 in South Carolina. Um, they've got an event scheduled for Saturday. Remember, Angela called yesterday, uh, Moms for Liberty. Uh, they will be, uh, whomever is on the Trump team is invited um, I don't know if the public's invited. I would imagine they would welcome the public. You never have enough um, at a showing, so to speak, of support for a candidate. But um, but we, we've, we've considered whether or not DeSantis is going to run or not. Um, he's been a bit mom. He's doing his job. He's dealing with CRT and Black Lives Matter and curriculum and education and whatnot. He's, a, um, he's an example of America first in action. I mean, he's a man of action. That's the persona that um that Ron DeSantis is trying to cultivate as he waits to make a, uh, waits to make a decision but Glenn Youngkin is a person that we've not talked about recently he of uh, red fleece sweater vest remember the uh, the campaign in Virginia yep. when he kind of uh, beat Terry McAuliffe and he overperformed in comparison to other Republicans in other in other places um, I mean, he's doing some interesting things. There's a $3.5 billion Ford electric vehicle battery factory. And um, and Yunkin is basically saying he won't allow taxpayer money to be used to recruit Ford. Here's words. I mean, this is where you know he's an America firster. Um, when he has America first in his bones. Or he's political expedient. Um, he basically said uh, Friday, I think, at one of these um, announcements that he was not going to allow um, the partnership to be funded by Virginia taxpayers. And the partnership is with a Chinese battery maker. And, and Yunkin's words were recruit Ford as a front for China. Um, this is a former CEO in the financial sector, well-versed in business, understanding uh, pretty, inter- pretty, I mean, as, as, as much as anybody I know on the Republican side, not named Blake Masters or J.D. Vance, he would have probably as much bona fides as anybody at the business side of globalism. Um, the J.D. Vance understands it with Palantir. Blake Masters understands it with Palantir. They both have experience uh, with Peter Thiel. So you've got Yunkin, who is formerly of the financial free market, suggesting that he's not going to allow this, um, this vehicle factory, uh, excuse me, this electric vehicle battery factory um, to do business in Virginia. In other words, you can do business, but taxpayer dollars are not going to subsidize the efforts because the majority of collaboration is with a Chinese battery maker. Um, the the company coming to South Carolina, coming to Florence County in particular, is a Japanese battery manufacturer. wonder if that came into play at all. I mean, wonder if that matters. I mean, the South Carolina Department of Commerce, the Local Economic Development Partnership, I mean, I just wonder um, if there were any politics involved in that. And, uh, you know, is there any business interest associated um, with China? If you live in Virginia, how do you feel about that? 
I mean, how do you feel if your chief executive officer basically nixes a $3.5 billion deal? Remember now, the Envision plan in Florence County is just south of a billion bucks, 850 some odd million dollars. So you're talking about three and a half times the size, really four times the size of what's happening in South Carolina was going to happen in Virginia until Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin says, thank you, but no thank you. Um, I read an article in NBC News yesterday. I'll read it verbatim. The decision by the former CEO stunned observers, leading many to see it as a further evidence that Youngkin is preparing to run for president and trying to neutralize the potential line of attack on his past business ties to the communist country. Um, Virginia does not allow governors to serve consecutive terms, so Youngkin can't not seek re-election. So if he's looking on the political horizon, um, you know, what is he making this decision on behalf of? Um, it seems to me there's a kind of a place of logic um, to his decision when you calculate the realm of politics. But is it good for Virginia? Um, th there's kind of a um, an anti-China sentiment within the Republican electorate. Um, it's, I don't want to say it's isolationist, but it's, it's surely anti-globalist, the, the, the perception by and large within voters in the um, – and how much credit does Youngkin get? Once again, Youngkin's been in the, in the business uh, world. He's been in the private sector, and he's been successful, highly successful, uh, managing – um, you know, uh, what about especially would have been uh, venture capital, private equity. I mean, that that would have been the uh, the place he was involved most heavily in, and he's got a lot of associations uh, in the past with China. I mean, there are a lot of questions in his you know Republican campaign for governor. Um, can this guy be trusted? You know, he professes to be a kind of a an America First Republican, but can he be trusted? Well, he's putting the um. He's putting his foot down, so to speak, by um, by doing whatever a governor can do. Now, what I can't find clarity on, can he nix the deal? What we talk about the weak governor in South Carolina, Virginia is a state with a, a fairly strong governor. Governor has a lot of executive authority in that state. Um, so if he's thinking about a move running for president, is he going to put 2,500 high-tech manufacturing jobs at risk um, Ford? It's one of the iconic American companies. Um, it's one of the long-struggling areas of the state. But but Youngkin appears to be ready to not allow $3.5 billion to be spent in Virginia if it includes taxpayer dollars to recruit a company that has a close alliance or association with China. Um, that's kind of a, uh, that's just a conundrum if you're in Virginia, if you're a Youngkin supporter. Do you want the jobs and investment? Or do you want a governor who is true to his um, anti-globalist, America first um, leanings or pedigree, uh, for lack of a better word? Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. It's Breeze. Good morning. That's pretty kind of good, Sidney Ken. I mean, here we are in South Carolina. You know, you and I, I believe, I guess you think the same way I do, that uh, this whole electric vehicle thing is all part of this green, new, whatever crap. It's just another way. Basically, that going to screw the average job, the average person, whether it be here in America, anywhere in the world, screw us over, um, take away our freedoms, take away our mobility, take away our ability to buy a car. And when you look at all of the all of the stuff associated with building an electric vehicle, 
I mean, I even read the batteries are so heavy on these electric vehicles, like on a Humvee, that you uh, increase the person's risk of death to get hit by one of these electric vehicles. I think every thousand pounds of weight, you probably know this for trucking, increases your persistent die by almost 50%. So here we are in South Carolina, we got Volvo, we got BMW, and then we got a battery plant going out of Florida. So you have to ask yourself, are, you know, you, so you, as, as, a, as do we want those companies here? Yeah, I guess we do. Do we want to make it batteries? Hell no. Because I don't believe that right now electric vehicles are viable. And I don't, give, I don't care what anybody says. You can't say they are. And I would love to see a NASCAR race done with electric vehicles. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate that. Um, and, and this is kind of where I wanted to head. So, see, I'm not as bullish. I mean, when I hear these announcements, $3.5 billion, $2 billion, 2,500 jobs, 1,000 jobs, we're basing that on some market analysis that has been done by people who are paid to do market analysis. I mean, we don't know how many electric cars there are going to be on the road in, in five years, in 10 years, in 15 years. We know the government is mandating certain things in certain places and, and uh, you know, kind of issuing requirements of certain companies at certain times in certain places. But I'm not very bullish. Remember yesterday when um when uh, Manasso came on and kind of under his breath, I mean, he laughed a little bit when I said, you know, we were told forever all the benefits and luxuries of electric cars. I mean, it's all good. There's nothing negative to see here until people start buying electric cars. And now we're finding out, wow, okay, cold weather caused them to drive 30% less miles. Um, why is that the case? Well, the battery is required. I mean, when you're driving down the road with a heater coil and, you know, the way you heat up a car, what if you're driving in cold weather and you turn the heat on, there is no internal combustion engine. There is no other power source. I mean, there is no other fuel. I mean, that battery is the sole provider of energy in that vehicle. So when you turn, you know, a switch on to cut the heater on, you're draining the battery. Well, if it's 20 degrees outside, 10 degrees outside, zero degrees outside, it takes more charge from the battery to run the heater. I mean, that's natural. And you don't have an alternator recharging the battery. You, you don't have a um, an alternate fuel like, I mean, you know, Jeff's talking about hydrogen and jets and all this thing. I mean, I think we're, I mean, I think we're, we're, we're eventually going to pay a price for jumping the gun and being unrealistic about how to transition from one mode of transportation to the other. The reason this story interests me is a guy who worked 25 years, the Carlisle group in private equity and venture capital, and the biggest customer he had was China is looking down the road at political opportunities and say, Hey, if, um, if I run nationally, they're going to hold that against me. So I've got to do something to offset, you know, my, my, I don't know, Rev, my involvement, um, and holdings at Carlisle, at the Carlisle group with, with China. And it leads me to believe that Yunkin is going to run if DeSantis does not. Now, do Ron DeSantis and Yunkin speak? And I don't have any idea. And is Yunkin enough of a, a Trumpster and enough of a not Trumpster? I mean, we argued that the reason he performed exceedingly well in Virginia was his ability to keep Trump close enough but far enough away. I mean, Virginia's a purple state. I mean, he won in a very dominant fashion. Um, he didn't. He got a lot of support from the Trump voters, but he also got the the vote of the establishment oriented Republicans. And it seems to me this is not strat not a business strategy, but rather political strategy 
when he says thank you, but no thank you to a Chinese um, or, or to a Ford project that's going to depend and rely heavily on Chinese manufacturing. Um, are we are we are we sure we understand how globalist the concept of electric vehicles is? I mean, if we if we're America firsters, let's ask a simple question: Should the America firster support a a government driven agenda of driving electric cars? I mean, I don't think so. I mean, I think the market eventually figures out what is the most efficient and and competent way to drive cars down the road. But it seems to me the government's not willing to allow the marketplace to do it on its own. Mm-hmm. Um, Obviously, it, it's going to you know as it always does manipulate the marketplace. And and I think Glenn Youngkin is up. doing something unbelievably interesting by by basically. And I, once again, I don't know that he has the authority to you know to to solely and on his own nicks a three and a half billion dollar economic development project that will create 2,500 jobs simply because there's a collaboration that Ford does in this particular vehicle with a Chinese battery manufacturer. How would we feel in Florence if Envision were a Chinese oriented company instead of, um, instead of Japanese, everything I've read about the company coming to Florence, it is a Japanese battery manufacturer what if it were a chinese manufacturer um is there some level of uh, political offset that we're having to look to take a break back in a minute eight four three six six one oh nine three seven so um glenn youngkin ron DeSantis, and greg abbott are all three governors that are basically having a china bashing contest which is fine by me i mean china's not our friend i don't think china's ever been our friend and Youngkin's decision to pull his state out of the running for this three and a half billion dollar economic development project, because he says that um, that Ford is allowing China to reap U.S. tax benefit, and the um, the citizens of Virginia will not be on the hook for that. Um, I mean, that's that's kind of an interesting strategy employed by some of these um, professing America First governors. Let's go to the phone, Mike in Darlington. Good morning, Mike. Hey, uh, good morning. Uh, you're off to a good start as always, but, uh, I think, uh, the whole thing about electric cars, did anybody think about what are we going to pave the roads with for these electric cars? Because, uh, last time I checked, uh, one of the primary ingredients is asphalt. I think that's a part of the, uh, manufacturing process when they uh, distill a distill out the fuels in crude oil but uh that uh this battery plant i was kind of iffy about that because i'm interested in how how much uh uh farmland is being sacrificed for some of these things and uh how will it affect the environment and what uh minerals will be put in the soil that may uh, kill the soil for generations to come. That's just a couple of questions. I, I wonder if these things have been studied out. Uh, or really, are they just saying, oh, well, there's a tax break on this or a tax break on that. But we're not ready for electric cars. They don't have the technology. The technology is getting there. It's a lot better than it was 100 years ago. But it's it's nowhere close to where it needs to be for us to go to electric cars. You know the uh, thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. The counter argument would be 
Uh, I mean, if I were running against Youngkin, I'd say, okay, the relationship you had with China was good until you made your $400 million fortune, and, and it's not good enough now for the hardworking, decent people of Virginia. You know, the $3.5 billion opportunity that Ford's putting out there to build, they're, they're collaborating with a Chinese battery manufacturer in a $3.5 billion economic development opportunity that will employ thousands of people. And Yunkin is basically saying, I don't want it in Virginia. Well, I mean, if I'm running against Yunkin, I say, well, I mean, you didn't have a problem with Chinese money until you got enough of it, you know, to amass a $400 million fortune. And now you're going to um, basically say thank you, but no thank you. After you get your $400 million, right. you're saying thank you, but no thank you to the hardworking people of Virginia. It's complicated, but it seems to me that there are a lot of Western companies that are uh, pulling back from some of the Chinese arrangements and, um, and collaborations uh, and, and saying that they are committed. There's this newfound commitment to America. And, um, I mean, I've read some of the trade publications about, you know, uh, voices of dissent within corporate America about, uh, you know, China doesn't play fair. In other words, why would you do business with China when you believe they steal your intellectual capital, when you believe they manipulate the currency to help cause problems to your economy? Because we sold our soul. We allowed China to become the world's manufacturing plant, and we are at the mercy of. Take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Someone held on during the break. Let's go to the phone. Keith listening in Virginia. Good morning, Keith. Good morning, Mr. Art. How are you? Good morning, sir. How are you? Uh, just fine, thank you. Uh, give you a little insight on what Governor Yunkin done. I think it was the right move for the place they wanted to put that in. It was in Danville, Virginia, and they took about 500 acres and put five 100-acre pads on it to attract business, and uh, they've been working on this deal for, I think, about six years. And uh, I just think it was a good move, and I think you're going to see Yunkin a little bit more moves out of him as far as the Commonwealth of Virginia and what's best for the Commonwealth. And Southside Virginia has always been sort of in the rural, rural areas. And would would that be Pittsville? Build. Is that Pittsville County? Am I right there? No, Pennsylvania County. Pennsylvania County. County. Okay, P-I-T-T-S. I, yeah. Okay. I, it's like it's, it's spelled like a like a uh, like a uh, the state, but you put an I in it. So gotcha. E. Gotcha. Uh, I live in the surrounding uh, neighboring county, which is Franklin County, and uh, they've been talking about it, you know, up around my area. And uh, like I said, I voted for Yunkin. I thought he was was going to be a good governor, give him time. McCullough, he didn't need it. I was tired of this heirs, you know, being entitled to that because he's one time. But uh, he Yunkin was kind of slow to get out of the gate because he's got, you know, Democratic House and Democratic Senate. And uh, so he he's finally getting out of the gate and showing what he's made of. Good deal. Uh, as as a Virginian, you support what Yunkin's doing by yes, nixing sir. a three and a half billion dollar deal. Yes, sir. That's I kind sure of interesting. Do, you know. Thank I'm you, sir. Well, I appreciate the call. Thank you very much. Appreciate uh, the time. That's kind of interesting. A Virginian calls in about an issue that we're speculating on as South Carolinians. Um, I mean, it's 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 a it's kind of a perplexing situation for a statewide elected official to make a decision on behalf of the entirety of the state.
But, but because, it's what you elect those people to do. Well, yeah, but because you are always you're talking about how do we grow business and create jobs, and so this seems to go a little bit against that. But from as a political move, I mean, you're a former politician. You've had to make political decisions. You thought were in your best interest to be elected or or whatever, go to, to step to the next thing. So what would you do? Well, I mean, are we going to do business with the communists or not? I mean, in essence, that's the fundamental question as, as a um, as a liberty-loving, libertarian-leaning, Jeffersonian Republican, the last thing I want to do is get in bed with communists. But that's kind of where we've gotten ourselves. Um, Ford would have operated the plant, but the, the Chinese company, it's actually called CA, it's our Contemporary Amperix Technology Company. It is a, uh, I would imagine, a state-subsidized entity of the communist um, Chinese government, but but here's what frustrates me more than anything, Reb, and this goes to the incompetent leadership of America. Um, we're going to see an evolution, we think, at some point in time. I think the government's rushing it up. I don't think we're ready for transitioning to electric cars. I think there are a lot of things we aren't considering, uh, the raw materials, uh, what 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 impact or effect that has on the planet. Um, but but we're we're always asleep at the switch. When it comes to, okay, I'll give you an example. So we we never pursued energy independence. We, we're always reluctant. So we were we were driving around in internal combustion engines dependent upon what? Petroleum producing nations at the mercy of cartels like OPEC to decide what the price of oil is, what the price, the subsequent price of, of gasoline is. Well, I mean, we're the ones mandating this transitioning in the economy. We've encouraged a lot of the European Union. I mean, we've convinced them climate change is real. I don't think it is, but we've been selling that message or that bill of goods all over the world. That's what we've been doing for about 20 or 25 years now to the point that there's been great investment in the technology that we believe eventually leads to a transitioning from internal combustion engines, fossil fuel-powered, to you know, battery-powered modes of transportation. I mean, that's in the macro. I mean, the devil's in the details. But here's what frustrates me. Um, the Chinese are communist. They shouldn't be as good at this as we are. But they're better. I mean, they're, they're absolutely better. 75% of the world's lithium deposits are in the what they call the lithium triangle. That's in Spain, excuse me, Argentina, Bolivia, and Brazil. I mean, there's kind of a triangle there that most experts believe um, 75% of all the lithium deposits there. Guess who owns 37% of the rights to 75% of the lithium in the world? The Chinese government. So how do we transition? How does the government mandate so forcefully a transitioning from fossil fuel energy to green energy and we're asleep at the switch? We don't have any contracts. The Chinese government has all the contracts with Argentina, with, with, with Bolivia, with uh, Brazil. And, and, and we're sitting here giving speeches about climate change and inaction and what it leads to and we'll all burn up in boiling oceans if we aren't careful. While we're giving speeches, flying around the world, lecturing to people in Davos, the Chinese government securing leases on all the lithium deposits in the world. I mean, they mean business. Communists aren't supposed to mean business. But they're much better at business than we are. Um, six of the ten largest electric vehicle battery manufacturers are where? In China. Why aren't they in America? 
I mean, if we're the ones considering trying to convince the world that this is the best way to, to you know, in the next 30 years, 40, 50, 60 years, this is going to be the um, the mode of transportation. I mean, we, we, we've, we've depended on foreign sources of petroleum for the entirety of the, the, let's say the internal combustion engine has had its run. I mean, I don't buy that, but let's say for argument's sake it has. When have we become, or, or when have we been serious, as serious as we need to about energy independence when it comes to fossil fuel during the Trump regime, I mean, there, during the Trump administration, I mean that that's when we were probably at our best. Gas burning cars were dependent upon what OPEC, Saudi Arabia, um, Russia, and and then here we are again. We're the ones that led this charge. We're the ones that said to the world, "Follow us. Here's a better way. Here's a more climate friendly way." to transport people from point A to point B, but all we did was give speeches. But when the Chinese heard American politicians say these things, they began securing leases. And now they have 37% of the world's 75% of lithium under contract. So where are we going to go to get lithium? We're going to be dependent not on Saudi Arabia and a cartel, but rather the Chinese communist government to provide the lithium necessary to do these collaborative projects. I mean, we're real good at giving speeches. We're not real good at acting on on certain things. So, you know, pick your poison. The Saudis or the Chinese? I mean, it's been the Saudis for as long as I've been alive. And I guess for my kids and grandkids, it'll be the, um, it'll be the Chinese who control and have almost monopolized the market that we basically created via our mandates and directives and incentives and tax credits and, and all these other things that we've done as a government. So does it really matter if the Chinese, if the communist Chinese are involved in, in this deal? To me, it does, philosophically. I mean, as a, um, as a, a libertarian-leaning Republican who believes in the, in the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, I mean, they stand against everything that I believe in. But, but once again, we're going to be forced because it takes raw material to build these electrics. And the raw materials under contract. I mean, we're we're you see where I'm headed. I mean, we're give, that's what frustrates me. Incompetent leadership. I mean, it's, it's totally incompetent. Wow. I mean, we, we are a terribly governed nation. We are incompetently governed nation, and y- y- you're getting whipped by the Chinese in capitalism. You create a sector of the economy to. I mean, you convince a sector. I mean, it, it's not like we're changing toothpaste. I mean, do you like scope or Listerine? A rib may like one, I may like the other. End of the day, no big deal there. Um, do we like gas cars or electric cars? Uh, let me think about it. No. I mean, that's a monumental decision in, in a nation's existence. And, and we're the ones basically co- trying to convince the world. I mean, we got John Kerry and Al Gore and, you know, the Davos men and women traveling around the world, uh, perceived experts in this field that we know very little about. And um, But, I mean, all of a sudden, John Kerry, a former senator, who's some I mean, of the best day's work Kerry ever did was say it, I do. To a lady who the best day, to Charles, correct me last week, the lady the best day's work she ever did was saying, I do. So he's, um, I mean, he's made money the old-fashioned way. He inherited money, influence, uh, and power. But we got John Kerry flying around the world. You know, I mean, I, I would argue lying to people. I mean, I don't know if he's intentionally or he really believes his craziness anyway. I mean, he referred to himself last week as an extraterrestrial. Really? I mean, the guy really? He did. I mean, he did. He referred to himself as a special sort of human yeah, being. A select group uh, of human beings. Maybe even an extraterrestrial. 
that that has the um the ability to change the outcome of the world's planet. Well, I think the Chinese hear these stupid speeches from our incompetent politicians, and they go to work. China is so much more effectively governed than America is. I mean, if we believe in liberties and freedoms, then let's espouse the virtues. Let, let's have policy and legislation that advances liberty and freedom. At least the Chinese will tell you what they are. I mean, they, you know, they've become somewhat of a hybrid between capitalism and communism. They're doing successfully what Gorbachev tried to do, you know, during the end of the, um, the Soviet Union's time on Earth. But they're doing it more effectively. They're just more competently governed. They do a better job at what they believe in than we do at what we believe in. So, so we're going to encourage the world to drive electric cars. So, I mean, it, by encouraging the world to drive electric cars or almost mandating of the world to drive electric cars or so I'm so, um, heavily incentivizing people to drive electric cars. It doesn't make much sense not to drive electric cars. Now, there are going to be a lot of disappointed customers, especially in cold weather, because we found out, you know, recently that the, 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 the battery's capacity is significantly diminished in colder weather. Surprise, surprise. Um, you got to turn the heater on. Where's that power come from? I mean, they're at the fan belt. You see what I mean? It's all about battery. It's all about the battery. Um, batteries don't produce energy. They store energy. As, as, um, as innovative as that sector has become, there's still a limit to how much energy they can store. So when you flip the heater on, it drains the battery. When you flip the heater on and drive the car, it doubly drains the battery. And it doesn't go as damn far as they said it would go, <laughs> by about 30% in, in some cases. So, you know, we're going to subsidize some of the, um, some of the charging stations while we're doing, uh, while we're debating on whether or not government should subsidize some of the charging stations, the Chinese are going out securing the rights to lithium. I mean, the communists are beating us at our own game fairly substantially, and, um, and, and the raw material, sooner or later, will probably be monopolized by some of our, um, some of our adversaries. And, you know, the European nations and uh, America will, will probably be as dependent on enemies of our belief system as we were with petroleum. It's almost like pick your poison. I said it earlier. It's Saudi Arabia and some of the cartels until now, and it looks like it's going to be um, China. But but to your point, would I be, I mean, I'd have to know more. I mean, I'd, I'd have to know all the ins and outs, all the do's and don'ts, all the nuances. But But if I'm an aspiring politician at the national level, any anti-China sentiment, resonates with the Republican primary voter. So I'd probably be in Yunkin's camp. I mean, I'd probably be opposed to $3.5 billion of economic development activity with a partnership with Ford because the, um, the plant is going to be controlled. In other words, from what I'm gathering, Ford will, it will be a Ford project, but the, the, the intellectual capital, while the reversal here, um, will be controlled by the Chinese battery manufacturer. I mean, they have the technology. Six of the top 10 EV battery makers today are in China. How can that be? I mean, how can we be the country that believes the climate is at risk? And because the climate is at risk, we've got to discourage people from driving internal combustion engines because we believe the CO2 emitted but the burning of fossil fuels is going to cause the oceans to boil. I don't believe any of that nonsense, but some of you do. So let's make the assumption that you're right and I'm wrong. 
And if we keep driving internal combustion engines, the, the oceans will eventually begin to boil. I mean, that's Al Gore's words. I mean, I'm not being hyper, uh, hyperbolic. That's what he, he said. He yelled it. He, he did. Yeah, you know, the oceans will burn. Uh, the oceans will boil and the rain will be on fire when it comes from, from the sky. But he has a very apocalyptic view of, you know, what that looks like when indeed we get past the, the point of no return. But how can we, for a generation, lecture to the world about what we believe is going to happen and six of the ten biggest EV manufacturer or battery makers are in China? I mean, how, how can that be the case? How can we not be any more serious about energy exploration when it came to the days of depending on OPEC and some of the petroleum-producing nations? We're just not a good governed nation. We're incompetent. We, we've got all sorts of credentials. We, we've got all sorts of, of education. We've got, I mean, we're the most educated people on the planet. We're the most credentialed people on the planet. we got certificates hanging on walls and offices of important people that make you believe they know exactly what they're talking about and what they're doing. Meanwhile, the Chinese are securing the permits to mine the lithium that we'll need to um, to power the cars that our government is going to eventually mandate that you and I drive. Maybe they were listening during the debate when Joe Biden said something about ending fossil fuels by, what, 2035? Well, maybe they actually listened and said, hmm, how can we get ahead on this deal? But imagine if you're a Chinese communist agent and you're watching the the California gubernatorial debate, and you hear Gavin Newsom, because you know he's going to win. He's a Democrat. It's California. And you're watching the debate from afar, and Gavin Newsom says, we're outlawing what we're not discouraging. We're not sending out memos. We're outlawing internal combustion engines by 2035 in California. In other words, if you're driving down the road in your pickup truck in California after 2035, you're breaking the law. But I'm not speeding. I didn't run that light. I didn't have, I mean, I'm not riding around without my seatbelt on. Doesn't matter. You're burning fossil fuel. You're boiling the ocean. And as a result of that, you're breaking our laws in California, the biggest and probably most powerful state in our nation when it comes to production of produce and, and you know, the food we eat. I mean, it's a very diverse and big, I mean, what, it's the 11th biggest economy in the world just on its own? I mean, it's one state of 50. But it's a different animal. California is a very different animal. What matters in California or what they do in California matters to the rest of us. But, but I mean, Gavin Newsom said that we're going to make illegal driving internal combustion-powered fossil fuel burning uh, modes of transportation. While he's saying that and liberals are cheering emphatically, the weirdness of that, the Chinese are getting more permits. They're buying more rights. They're securing more um, drilling or, or mining permits. It wouldn't be drilling, be mining permits on lithium, which is one of the major ingredients of, um, I mean, once again, 75% of the lithium, they have 37% of the permits. I mean, they're going to monopolize lithium mining <laughs> and you can't drive electric cars or make electric cars without lithium. 843 It's smart. I mean, once again, the communists, we're so bad. <laughs> if at your goal is to dominate the world, well, I mean, a, but 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 we're so bad at capitalism, we're losing to the communists. <laughs> I mean, just think of that, guys. We are so bad at the practice of capitalism, we're 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 losing over and over and over to communists. Take a break. We'll be back in just a few. 
You know, I want to get back to one thing that I think President Trump's legacy will be. I mean, when you think about presidents, they shape the agenda of their common political party. Republican presidents shape the agenda of Republican politics. Democrat presidents shape the agenda of Democrat policy. Donald Trump shaped both parties' perspective on China. I mean, if you really think about the long-lasting political impact or effect that Trump had by winning in 16, he convinced both political parties that China is not your friend. Guess who's done exactly the same thing as Yunkin has in Virginia, Whitmer in Michigan? Not exactly the same thing, but similar to that, she's basically said that um, that we're objecting to this Ford deal because of its coordination or collaboration with the Chinese battery manufacturer. And, um, and she's a Democrat, fairly liberal Democrat in a state that needs uh, employment, wow. that needs opportunity. And where's Ford based? Yeah, Ford's based in Dearborn. Um, and I mean, I think they've got a bunch of empty buildings in Dearborn. I think they're building about everything in China mm-hmm. and, um, and Mexico and some of these, some of these other places. We'll get back to that in just a second. Um, every now and then we're heading down one road and we don't have any idea when Freehold hands me this list of guests and we, um, we check off one or two or three every morning. We don't have any idea where we're going to be at the time these guests are able to call in, but, but this is very interesting to me. Because this is one of the enormous challenges in America today. We're talking for the past 30 minutes about electric vehicles or internal combustion engines. Are they going to build in in, uh, Virginia or Michigan? Are they not? Republican governors have a perspective. But but the one thing I think we can rally around and be united by is, is the southern border and the amount of fentanyl making its way into America. Full disclosure, most of you know this. But I had a kid addicted to opiates. He was introduced to opiates at the hospital for special surgeries in New York, very legitimate surgery. Uh, they prescribed an Oxycontin, and 10 years later, uh, we were ending the battle. And I just um, thank the good Lord in heaven for allowing us to endure that very unfortunate episode of our lives. But a lot of families don't. And, and the great fear I had as a parent of a kid who I knew was addicted to opiates was ending up with one laced fentanyl and and the tragic circumstance 150 people are dying daily as a result of fentanyl overdoses the director of multidisciplinary pain fellowship program at johns hopkins university dr paul christo is with us dr christo good morning how are you good morning thank you Just and fine. I, I hope i got the last name correct but um but but th- there's no denying republicans and democrats argue a lot about a lot of things I don't hear a lot of argument about fentanyl being a threat danger to America. Um, can you explain to us how deadly fentanyl is and how prevalent it is in American culture and society? Well, you know, we use as physicians, so anesthesiologists, for example, use fentanyl all the time. And we have for many, many years in the operating room to reduce pain. We also use it as pain specialists for those who have chronic pain that may be cancerous or non-cancerous. So it can be very safe. However, what we're talking about now is something different. I mean, this is the non-therapeutic use of a drug called fentanyl, which is a synthetic opioid being, you know, uh, illegally manufactured. To put this into perspective, it only takes maybe 15, the equivalent of maybe 15 or 20 grains of table salt to kill a person who's using fentanyl, you know, inappropriately. So it's easy to die, unfortunately, with, with fentanyl. 
Dr. Christo, what are we to do? I mean, you're in the medical profession. You understand the medical nuances and the dangers and threats. The majority of us don't. We see a southern border. We hear that a lot of fentanyl or illicit fentanyl, synthetic fentanyl, is making its way into our nation. Um, what what suggestions would you make in regards to uh, how to curtail the deaths, the number of people dying as a result of fentanyl use? Well, uh, certainly I think that we need uh, better law enforcement at, at the border, you know, between Mexico, California, Mexico, and Arizona uh, to forestall these criminal organizations from transporting the drug across the border to the United States. But in addition to that, I think we need greater understanding uh, of the use of the opioid reversal drug called Narcan, also called naloxone. This is a spray that uh, is injected into the nostril of someone who's overdosing and saves lives, no question about it. Is And this is one of the great struggles I had. I don't know if you heard me earlier, but I had a kid who was addicted to opiates. Is, is, is addiction a choice or a disease? Addiction is a disease. Uh, you know, it it's basically takes hold when you take a drug with rewarding properties, and it could be fentanyl in this case, it could be alcohol, and you introduce it to a vulnerable person at a vulnerable time in life. And there are certain risk factors for the development of addiction. Uh, and about 85% of addictions express themselves by age 35. So your son was probably quite young when that occurred. What are some of the recommendations you'd make? Last question. It's probably unfair, but I'll ask it anyway. You would know much more about this than I. What are some of the recommendations you'd make as, as some of these pharmaceutical companies settle with the government? There will be enormous funds available to try and help people who have become addicted. What What is money well spent from your perspective at aiding and assisting the, the, the nature of addiction in America? I think that that money, uh, certainly in part, should be targeted to help people afford and finance the cost of addiction treatment across the country. We don't have enough addiction treatment centers across the country, and they're quite expensive. So I think a lot of that money should be targeted to help those who are in the throes of addiction uh, go to treatment, because treatment is key. You know, there's no question about it, but treatment can last for a month. It may be six weeks. It may be a couple of months, and it's often unaffordable for most. But you would agree, I said last question, this will honestly be the last question. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's a necessary evil, though. I mean, people have chronic pain. Somebody will have trauma today, and they'll need something to help them deal with that, that traumatic pain. Um, it's kind of, is, it, is it fair to say it's somewhat of a catch-22? Well, remember, we're really not talking about the abuse of this drug for patients who have chronic pain and who are using opioids therapeutically and legitimately. We're really not, that's not the population here. So I really think if you're a patient and you need opioid therapy, it's highly unlikely really at this point that you're going to overdose from these medications if used safely. Okay. You wrote a book, Aches and Gains, a comprehensive guide to overcoming your pain. What motivated you to write that book? What is the book about? The book really is about uh, different methods of pain control, and it focuses on traditional methods of pain control, medications, for example, uh, non-opioid medications, injections, interventions, a whole host of those that we use to help reduce pain, as well as um, integrative therapies like acupuncture. I think it's very helpful for those who struggle with pain. And you can get it on my uh, website, paulchristomd.com. Dr. Christo, thank you for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. That's kind of an interesting change of pace here at Wake Up Carolina. Anytime you get a chance to speak to the director of Multidisciplinary Pain Fellowship Program at Johns Hopkins Hospital, 
Um, I just like talking to doctors from Johns Hopkins so I can home. I mean, you know, today at lunch, I'll say, I was talking to a guy. I mean, he runs this uh, multidisciplinary <laughs> right. program at Johns Hopkins, and he and I were talking about, oh, did you? Okay, okay. And uh, and what did you learn during that uh, conversation? Anyway, back to the grind. <laughs> you wouldn't four, be lying when you said I wouldn't be lying at no. all. I, I just yeah. think that there are a lot of people listening to my voice who are living in the shadows. I know you are. You're helpless when it comes to addiction. You're living an otherwise normal life. You've got a loved one or know of a loved one who is struggling with addiction. The addiction is, I mean, it's consuming. It, it, it will overwhelm those who believe that there is no hope. There is no way out. There is no end to this other than, than tragedy. And I think success is possible. There is no doubt about it. My concern, and I've expressed this over the airways, my concern when the pharmaceutical companies agreed that they were liable to some degree. I mean, there, there was a settlement, and the pharmaceutical companies accepted responsibility. Now, they, they, they wrote in the documentation and the, in the settlements, we, we don't accept any responsibility, but here's, you know, $100 billion. Well, I mean, if you're given $100 billion, you're accepting responsibility, but, but I get it. I mean, you wanted to save face and, and, and not make it look like you coerced people into becoming addicts and, and you, you misled people about the addictive nature of the medication, my concern is that the majority of settlement money will end up in the coffers of government agencies that will squander the hundreds of billions of dollars that pharmaceutical companies have settled. And, and the, the, you know, what we need to do, and, and I mean this sincerely, there needs to be a task force. Imagine that, another blue ribbon committee in government, but there needs to be some sort of advisory element within the settlement where we allow kids and grown-ups for that matter. I mean, it's not, I mean, this is not an R and or D problem. It's not a black or white problem. It's not a rich or poor problem. I mean, addiction is real and it knows no socioeconomic bounds. It knows no political partisanship. Um, what we need to do is take the money the drug companies gave to the government and demand of the government to invest in highly qualified, successful rehabilitation programs in the private sector that have a track record of successfully rehabilitating addicts. That's where the money needs to go. They're not, we don't need to hire 25,000 new bureaucrats and create 1,900 new government agencies. And, and you know, right. I mean, we just don't need to do that, guys. I mean, the billions of dollars are there to help families. Let's send families to world-class rehabilitation facilities. I'm not wealthy, but I ain't broke. And I had the resources to find my kid a place that had a great track record, 74%, a 74% likelihood of getting better. And if we, if we bury these people in government agencies staffed by good intentional or good intended bureaucrats, the success rate will be less than one in four. Trust me. Look at the government agencies that try to rehabilitate what their success rates are. Look at the world-class expensive. I mean, there's no doubt about it. It's expensive, but what is a, a life worth? And I just want to see the billions of dollars go in a fund and that money dispersed or allocated to places that have already achieved high success rates. And when you go there, there's a three in four chance that your, your, your loved one is healed instead of a one in four chance. If we give this money to, you know, said government agency a b or c let's go to the phone neil and sumter listening to wdxy good morning neil 
Hey guys, good morning. I've uh, actually got quite a bit of info, so feel free to cut me off. Uh, but I want to talk about the classified stuff because I think there's some, some misinformation out there. Um, first off, um, when I was in college, I had the, the good fortune of being near the Eisenhower Library in Avalon, Kansas, and had the opportunity to do some research there. And it's uh, everything there in that uh, library looked like a library. What I really remember, uh, just kind of like what you think, what I really remember was that they still had a section over 30 years later that was classified that we weren't allowed to have access to. So that was at the presidential library. At pretty much any presidential library, that those documents uh, would be archived and there would be a classified section. Um, but more importantly, so within the world of classified info, you've basically got four levels. You've got unclassified, confidential, secret, and top you do have a new category called uh, CUI, which is Controlled Unclassified Info, and that's a new category. It's basically everything, if you've ever heard the term for official use only or uh, law enforcement classified, those things have all been lumped into that. So that basically means that the information in there is unclassified, but it's not meant to be distributed out to the masses. And an example uh, work at the, uh, at the Air Force Base is if you're emailing something that falls into that CUI category, on an unclassified email, the email has to be marked. So in the title of the email, it says controlled unclassified info. And then on the steps up, confidential uh, would cause damage to the United States, secret would cause grave damage, and top secret would be exceptionally grave damage. I think of those as, think of those as three stories on a building. And within each of the floors of that, you have the potential for, say, a giant atrium room. Uh, so at the secret level, you might have this giant room that all that information is available to anybody who's got a secret clearance. But then you might have separate rooms off to the side uh, where based on a need to know basis, you do or do not allow people to have that info. And as you go up in classification, it becomes more and more common to section off that info. So even if somebody has a top secret clearance, they may not have a need for access to certain information uh, until they're, they're brought into that. So, but the one thing I wanted to kind of mention is I think we're thinking of this, these documents. Neil, Neil stop there for a second. I want to ask you a question. Okay. So, so having sure, said ahead. what you did, what yeah. sort of information, uh, let's speculate for a second. I mean, we're hypothesizing, but stick with me for a sure. second. So if we believe that Hunter Biden was paid, well, we know he's paid a lot of money by foreign governments. What sort of classified information would those foreign governments have an interest in? Explain that in layman's terms. I mean, is it a... um. I mean, is it a trade secret? Is it uh, military maneuvers? I mean, what what sort of information could a senator have gotten his hands on and, and, you know, removed from the premises, put in a certain place that a foreign government would be highly interested and willing to pay a lot of money to to ascertain that information? Traditionally, you know, if you look at, uh, I'm kind of a fan of the uh, the Cold War, uh, the spy era of the Cold War. We had the Russian agents. Traditionally, what we were looking for when we had those deep uh, Russian agents in the 60s, 70s, we were looking for technical information uh, was the main thing. We were looking for the technical aspects of, of our military programs. Now, I have zero idea, zero clue what, what we're talking about here with the Biden situation. But I do know this. We've watched the Chinese make weapons advances, and that's, that's in the news, and hypersonics and other things very, very quickly. Um, and these are things that we had a lead in not long ago. So, but... You know, spying has changed. Spying isn't, you know, a dude with a camera, you know, taking copies of blueprints. It's, it's done mostly uh, on the Internet nowadays. But so I would think it would be more of the political military decision making stuff like opinion papers. But, but I, I really have no idea. OK, um, 
at that level. But the the one thing I wanted to say was when I was, you know, before the proliferation of the internet, and we have you know classified internets and stuff and and, and all that. When you would get a document, you might it might have a number on the top that you'd, you'd have access to it that says this is copy number one of of fifteen, um, and there might even be a register that say you looked at it. Well, once things went electronic, um, the classified information, in my mind, stopped being tracked as detailed. So I doubt that there was probably anybody saying, "Oh, hey, you know, we we brought document X to Senator Biden, and." You know, we're tracking it, and now it's missing. I, I think we're, we're all thinking, hey, isn't there some, you know, librarian somewhere who says, hey, this book is missing? I doubt that's the case. It could very easily be in a staffer with a clearance printed off something interesting, brought it into the senator's office or the vice president's office, said, hey, read this. And instead of, instead of destroying it, you know, he stuffed it in a – stuffed it somewhere. That, that's very possible. Sure. Um, it's much harder to control that information now than it used to be when it was – when it, I mean, I remember getting stuff um, – you know, to read, and it was like this is copy one of ten. You know, and and there were instructions that hey, when you destroy this, here are the instructions, and it's just not quite like that anymore. Interesting. Thank you, Neil. That's been formative. Yeah, thanks. Uh, and knows a lot more about that world than obviously I do. Take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. So let me ask you: We're, we're not Virginians. We're not dealing with what Virginia and Michigan's doing with Yunkin and Whitmer. But if if we found out that let's say BMW is building an electric vehicle. And there's a plant to locate in the PD region of South Carolina. And they make the electric, uh, the, the battery technology that is compatible to BMW, that is a South Carolina domiciled company. Are we willing to allow that company to set up shop in Florence or Sumter or Orangeburg if it's run by the Chinese communist government? Hmm. I mean, is that a fair question? It's very fair. I mean, there's discussion now about the Chinese buying up land across america well be there's some states that have outlawed the chinese government from buying farmland of any sort i mean whether it's on the the pd river or wherever it doesn't matter um or or does it is that economic you know isolationism i mean it's obviously economic nationalism no question about it but is it isolationist in nature to do what it, it appears youngkin wants to do in in virginia and, and what would you say if the governor of South Carolina said thank you but no thank you to a $3.5 billion economic development opportunity, but but the the opportunity was going to consist of a collaboration between Ford Motor Company and a Chinese or a, a battery manufacturer owned by the Chinese communist government? What sort of appetite would you have for that? I mean, we're talking about economic nationalism. I mean, that's kind of prevalent. It's populism, but it's a threat of populism that believes in certain economic realities. Let's look after America. Let's provide jobs for the American workforce. Um, I mean, if you're going to, um, I saw where Yunkin wants to build a um, one of these small nuclear reactors in Southwest Virginia, and he's asked for five, I think $5 million in state funding to research some of the technology why wouldn't you ask for the five million to research some of the technology to be more competitive with some of the um, some of the Chinese companies right. that appear to me have jumped the gun? I mean, they they've already established themselves as the dominant force because they've got some of the contracts, some of the mining contracts. They know where the lithium is. Remember when they asked Jesse James, "Why do you rob banks?" He said, "That's where the money is." Um, why do you secure you know contracts or mining agreements in Bolivia and in, in Brazil? You, you, 
you secure the contracts because that's where the lithium is. Or as we say in the country, that's where the lithium beta. Um, so, I mean, I'm just saying we're getting out capitalist by communist. And and we got to do a better job of, you know, could, could Yunkin ask for $5 million in state funding to research the technology to be more competitive in the space that he says we need to buy? Because he's saying, basically, you know, I don't want the Chinese building the batteries. I, I don't want a collaborative. I don't want Virginia taxpayer dollars to subsidize a company owned by the Chinese communist government. But they've got all the lithium. Remember, the banks have all the money. They've got all the lithium. Where do you go from there? We're always asleep at the switch. I'm sorry. We are. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. One of the staples of our show has been Dr. Bolt coming on Tuesday morning at 8 o'clock. Rev says that he knew nothing about American history because uh, he didn't pay attention <laughs> in history class. I didn't pay enough attention, yeah, I didn't I pay enough attention in history class. But he's learned a great deal from two brilliant historians, yours truly and Dr. Bolt, you know, um, traveling through the early days of American origin. I want to take – good morning, Dr. Bolt. How are you? Hey, good morning. Good I, I, I want to spend a good bit of time this morning talking about – and I want you to, as, um, as, as, as whimsically as you can, <laughs> take us back to um, the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia. That would have been late 1787, if I'm not mistaken – um, so we, we win the revolutionary war, we have the declaration of independence, but we got to have some way to govern ourselves. Am I right? Yeah. So what, how did we govern from the adoption of the declaration of independence until the constitutional convention in 1787? I uh, sort of have it's a, a no man's land, if you will, but in 1781, we approve a document called the articles of confederation and perpetual union. And what this is, it's a product of its time. Uh, it creates a very weak, decentralized government. There's no executive, uh, no president, no system of national courts. All power resides in Congress. It's a, a unicameral legislature. Uh, all of the states are equal. All of the states have one vote. We've just said everybody's created equal in the Declaration. Here we do it. So New York, Virginia have as much power as Rhode Island, North Carolina. Uh, the government is so, so weak, it's it's basically ineffective. It cannot resolve any of the problems that come about once the revolution is over. Uh, we were so wary of giving the government power, the government didn't have the power to tax the people under the Articles of Confederation. And the good old days, right? Because uh, certainly they were afraid that they would, they would abuse it. This was one of the, the grievances that led up to the revolution. So the national government had to ask the states for money whenever it needed, and the states were like, well, let me, let me get back to you in a couple of days. So the government couldn't fund uh, anything, couldn't pay the troops in the field. So nobody wanted to serve in the Army. Uh, the British had agreed that they would vacate all of their forts, all of their positions after the Revolution ended, and the British, no, well, we don't have an Army. Uh, and so the British now start to drag their feet. They're not going to live up to the terms, and you still had British soldiers in forts on American soil. Because the British knew the government of the United States was powerless to do anything about it. So this creates more and more calls to at least to modify or change the government of the United States. And it finally reaches a crescendo. Uh, by the time we get to 1787, most people are so upset. Uh, you have Shays' Rebellion. This is really the tipping point for many Americans. And so this leads to more and more increased calls for the Constitutional Convention 
which convenes in Philadelphia, as you know, in 1787. So when people say, you know who you are, that I am a constitutionalist, in essence, the Constitution was a device planning for a stronger federal government, a Absolutely. more organized right. federal government. So when someone says, I mean, we weren't anarchists from 76 to 87, but we made it up as we went. Is, is that a it's fair kind of, good analysis? It, yeah. Again, it's a very, very weak decentralized government with very, very little power. You couldn't get anything done. We're the laughing stock of the world. Is it kind of like the, the dog that catches the car? It's a good way to okay, put it. we won the war. Now what do we <laughs> do? What's, what's well, we, you know, we don't do anything. So, I mean, yeah. once again, it was not anarchy. So, when someone says, "I'm a constitutionalist. I'm for limited government," was that the mindset? In other words, if if the Constitution was to provide the framework for limited government, but organized government nonetheless, who are the masterminds? Who were the brainchilds sure. that that said, "Okay, guys, we can't keep doing it like we're doing it. We can't keep piecemealing." the way we govern ourselves, who, who who began down the road of ending up in 1787 in the Constitutional right. Convention? The two kind of major figures, the driving forces, are Alexander Hamilton of New York and James Madison of Virginia. These two very, very smart guys. They had read all of the classics. They knew uh, how government functioned and worked, the good, the bad, and the ugly. They call for a convention to meet in Annapolis, Maryland in 1786, only a few states bother to send people up there. Uh, and Madison and Hamilton say, all right, and let's let's try this again. Let's meet in Philadelphia in the spring of 1787. The call goes out. And again, most people, most states say, ah, we're not we're not we're not doing it. We're, it hasn't yet reached reached the point. Uh, what happens next is that news of Shays Rebellion happens. And again, this is where uh, rebels in Massachusetts rose up, nearly toppled the government. Uh, the government under the Articles couldn't raise troops, couldn't send troops in to suppress this rebellion. The bigwigs in Massachusetts had to pass the hat to raise the militia to put down the rebellion. And lots of people start to realize, well, hmm, Massachusetts is sort of this, this model, this almost utopia, if you will. If something like this can happen in Massachusetts, why can't it happen anywhere else? And so now people start talking about, well, maybe we might, might want to send some people to this meeting up in Philadelphia to modify the articles, but then the big point or the tipping point comes when the guy who lives at Mount Vernon announces, I'm going to go up to Philadelphia. And so suddenly if George Washington is willing to put his status, his reputation on the line, it's game on. So suddenly all the states are to say, hey, if Virginia is sending Washington its best and brightest, we better send our A-team as well. And so again, this is why you're going to have some of the best thinkers and politicians coming to Philadelphia. But you didn't have the greatest thinker of all. He was, that's right. I mean, the, you, the two greatest thinkers, Jefferson and John Adams. Correct. Okay, so, so, so Madison and and Hamilton are scheming, and, and to some degree, that's what they were doing. Yeah. And they're very, very capable, very competent, very qualified to do this. Yeah. Why was Jefferson and Adams excluded from any early conversations sure. about the Constitution? Had they, had they been here, they certainly would have been invited, and they certainly would have gone. They were just serving abroad at this time uh, in diplomatic positions over in France and England. So, right, one of the great ironies in American history, our two best constitutional thinkers, the guys who'd forgotten more than any of the other guys in Philadelphia knew, uh, are on the sidelines, and we can't tap into their their expertise and their knowledge. Uh, We can kind of criticize Hamilton and Madison for kind of scheming, but winners get to write the history. 
Uh, it worked out in the end for them. They were on the right side. So what did Jefferson and Adams eventually say of what happened in 1787? When did they first say anything about the Constitutional Convention? No, they, they, they weren't there. Yeah. And a lot of people don't know this. Jefferson never signed the Constitution. No, he didn't. I mean, he that, did. That's a political oddity. He, he didn't like it at first. And I think I've told you the story is once they were all done, Madison sent a copy. to and Madison was very proud. Madison is the father of the Constitution. He issued the call. Most of the language in the Constitution is from his pen, his mind. And Jefferson is in France sipping some fancy French wines, gets the Constitution and writes back, this is great, Jim. I love it, but where's the rest? And, of course, the rest was uh, a Bill of Rights. Madison said, I sent you the whole darn thing. And Jefferson says, oh, well, since there's not a Bill of Rights, I've, I've got a bit of an issue with this document. Uh, Adams was okay with the document, thought it was too weak. Uh, Addison, Madison, or excuse me, Adams was more of a, a centralist uh, and said, we need to kind of maybe strengthen some of these powers uh, a little bit more, give the president more powers. Was Hamilton and Madison, I mean, we're speculating here. You don't know. I don't know. Was their intent to always do something like this with Adams and Jefferson preoccupied? Because they gotta, <laughs> they, they've got to understand how complicated and difficult those sure. two guys could be. It may be, may be Hamilton, but Madison was an excellent soldier. He always deferred to Thomas Jefferson. Madison never wanted to take the, the spotlight, uh, if you will. He was always happy to be in a subservient position, taking the orders from Jefferson. Uh, you know, he was like, the when the play was called, Madison said, all right, even if I disagree with it, I'm going to execute it. If it works out, you'll get the credit. If it doesn't, I'll throw myself on the sword. And everybody know it was my fault that it didn't work. So very, very few people have been so so loyal, willing to almost sacrifice their careers as James Madison was for for Thomas Jefferson. And Hamilton was certainly more out for himself. So what sort of debate was there? I mean, the preamble. I mean, to me, that outlines the Constitution's purpose, right? I mean, that that's the guiding principle yeah. of the Constitution is its preamble. So how much debate? How much? discussion how much disagreement was there about the content of the constitution a lot of people when they read the first three words of the constitution we the people they crumpled it up and said no this ain't for me and a lot of americans believed. what do you mean by that they wanted it to be we the states and when they read we the people they said well wait a minute this is a government that's going to act directly on the people of new york south carolina georgia What's the point now for state governments? Because the next three words are the next four words of the United States. So they would have rather we the states of the United States. And the argument was, well, it's going to be too, too much. And then what happens, right, if we, once we start adding states, would they not be included in that? But no, there are a lot of Americans, the anti-federalists, who said, "Uh uh-uh. As soon as they read the first three words, you can't judge a book by the cover. They judge the document by the first three words, and they say, this is not for me. So how do you put Humpty Dumpty back together again? If you get a document <laughs> and you're a political influence and, and you expect we the states and you read we the people, you ball it up, you throw it in the trash, <laughs> wh- where do you go from there? I mean, how do they how do they resume productive conversations? Well, they, were, they were along for the ride. And so what happened was the Federalists, the guys who want the Constitution to be approved, moved quickly. And so we finished in September 1787. By the end of December, uh, several states, Delaware, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Connecticut, have already ratified it, probably before lots of people have even looked at it or knew. And so very, very quickly, the Federalists realized, we've got to move quickly. If we delay this, this gives the opponents more time to read it, to understand it, and to mount an opposition. 
All right, so it's a brilliant political campaign. They struck fast. They moved quickly. Uh, they out-hustled, out-organized their opponents. So the Bill of Rights comes along when? Uh, it's drafted 1789. Uh, James Madison had made a, a solemn pledge to the people of Virginia, and a lot of Virginians were upset and said, well, hey, without a Bill of Rights, what's to stop the government of the United this new government from infringing on my liberties? Madison said, trust me. If you support the Constitution, I'll go to Congress, and I pledge I will include a Bill of Rights uh, from the get-go. And nowadays, right, when if we hear a politician say something, I don't know if I believe this guy, uh, people trusted Madison, and that was good enough for the people of Virginia. A lot of them held their nose. They approved it. Madison goes to Congress. He's got to sort of deal with some other issues first. He's got to take care of funding. He's got to pass a tariff. Uh, but as soon as he's done with that, he turns his attention uh, to the Bill of Rights. It takes him several months, uh, but he's able to kind of steer them through. Uh, originally, 12 amendments were passed. The states ratified 10. It takes a couple of years, but 1791, the Bill of Rights are incorporated. But it was an amending of the Constitution. No, these were just personally. And again, lots of people wanted to change functions of Congress, change the powers the president had. Any of those amendments, Madison just crumbled them up and said, no, we're not going down that road. Uh, here's where I'm headed. So, so the Bill of Rights were eventually added to the Constitution. When was it, when was the conversation of whether or not and how to amend the Constitution? Because what do we have, 27 amendments today? 27 if I'm right not now. mistaken, yep. 27 amendments to the Constitution. So as part of the Bill of Rights, you, you're arguing the Bill of Rights are not necessarily amendments, but rather a part of the Constitution. So in addition. Is right. that a scholarly debate? I mean, is there is there a worthy debate to say the Bill of Rights was indeed 10 amendments guaranteeing these personal individual freedoms and liberties. And a lot of protections would probably be a Some of the guys word. at the Constitutional Convention said we need a Bill of Rights. Three guys refused to sign the Constitution after working on it for several months. Said no, because of this, most of the state constitutions had a Bill of Rights. And Madison's argument was this is a government of limited powers. It can only do the things we're explicitly outlining and so thus, it's, it can't threaten these personal individual liberties that you think you had. But a lot of Americans didn't think it went far enough. And so this is why there were more and more calls for, for a Bill of Rights. And Madison realized which way the winds were blowing. So when did the argument or debate ensue about whether or not to amend the Constitution? No, this was at the Constitutional Convention. And under the Articles of Confederation, you could make changes. You could amend it. The problem was it had to be unanimous, so it required every state to approve. And so what had happened was under the Articles, they wanted to include a tax bill, a tariff, and 12 out of the 13 states said, okay, that's fine. Tiny Rhode Island, the smallest states, said no. George Washington writes a public letter, says, hey, guys, we desperately need this power. Reconsider. And they politely flipped George Washington off. Things were so bad that there were serious calls to have the Massachusetts militia march on Rhode Island and take it over. So now you would have 12 states and everybody would approve the amendment. So in Philadelphia, we say, All right, we're not perfect. We can amendment. We can amend the, the Constitution. We'll take a two-thirds vote of Congress and now three-quarters of the states. Very, very difficult, a high threshold, but not impossible. How many states? So we were still 13 original colonies 13 originally, in 1791. Yeah. Yeah, it takes a little while before we start getting Kentucky. So uh, when is Tennessee. that? I mean, when, when do we add states? We start doing it in the 1790s, yeah. It doesn't take long at all. And it's not until you get the Bill of Rights that finally 
North Carolina and Rhode Island say, all right, uh, we're going to come back and rejoin the Union. You had a very, very large number of anti-federalists, uh, men who were very, very hostile to this new strong government. And it's only with the Bill of Rights that they finally come back. But those who say they're strict constitutionalists are, in essence, agreeing that the Constitution was a blessing of a central government designed by uh, James Madison and Alexander yeah. Hamilton. I, I, on some level, they're right. As Madison and even Hamilton, a lot of this was a government, again, of very, very limited powers. Very quickly, though, things begin to evolve. Hamilton gets the upper hand over Thomas Jefferson, and suddenly now you have a very strong, powerful national government. And once the government starts to take on these powers, it's not going to give them back to the states. But do you believe that the preamble was indeed the essence of the Constitution? We, the people, should have been the states of the United <laughs> yeah. States in order to form <laughs> a more, more perfect human, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility. I mean, do you believe that was the essence of the Constitution, was to design a government, create a government that had very limited authorities, um, very limited responsibilities? Sure. But again, it's a product of its time. Right? The articles were just so, so broken. A government couldn't get anything done at all. And so this was the next the next logical step. And so, again, this was, again, how it was originally intended. You very, very quickly realize that in, in this, even at the, in the 1790s, you're going to need a more energetic national government. Interesting. Um, 843-661-0937, our number. We'll take our first break. Talking a little on um, a couple of constitutional scholars just kicking the can. <laughs> oh, yeah. About, um, I mean, I'm learning with you guys, and I mean this sincerely. I've read more than you care to know about <laughs> the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence. I never knew. I mean, I knew Adams and Jefferson were away, but I never knew that some balled it up and said thank you, but no thank you, when it said we the people instead of we the states. That's what you learn for listening to thank this you. highfalutin <laughs> attempted radio brilliance. We'll take a break back in just a few. 843-661-0937, History Chair, Francis Marion University. Dr. Will Bolt is with us. I got a friend who's got a uh, kind, of, kind of a hypothetical idea, and he says the reason that Jefferson gets more notoriety than Adams, I mean, they're both well-regarded, well-respected. Um, you said during the break you feel Adams was Jefferson's intellectual equal. Yeah. That's, that's tall weeds. I mean, that's, exactly, um, yeah. that's rare air if indeed that's the case. Adams had a better gift of orator sure. than Jefferson. Yeah. Jefferson admitted he was not a good speaker. Hated in, it. In fact, he gave two speeches in his entire political president, career that we're president. aware of. He gave two speeches as president, his inaugural addresses, and when he was done, most people, I, I couldn't hear it. They had to wait until the next day to read it in the newspapers. Because he was not a good speaker. Didn't so it? here's the theory that my friend has. I want to get your take on this. Um I'm dragging you kicking and screaming into being an opinion monster like yours <laughs> ah, truly. Nothing wrong with that. But, 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 okay, Jefferson and Adams existed in a world where the written word was more pervasive than the spoken word. There yep. was no CNN. There was yep. no Fox News. There was no radio. There was no Internet. If Adams and Jefferson were doing their thing today, so to speak, Jefferson would struggle yeah, because yeah. people don't read like right. they read back then. I mean, the only way you could learn and understand and comprehend was to get letters or read things, read policy, read documents. Is yeah. that is that something you've ever considered that Jefferson, I mean, I think you would agree to this, Jefferson's name resonates with a larger audience than Adams. Than Adams, yeah. 
Um, I mean, when you think about the great thinker of America, Jefferson yep. would win that two to one over Adams. Yeah. I mean, you, you think Adams was equally contributing to the, the greatness of America's uh, oh, early he's, he's days there from the very beginning as well. But yeah. Jefferson gets far more credit. Yeah. And I think the reason he gets more credit is these writings have been yeah. memorialized. I mean, they, they, they are entrenched in American history and are part of our DNA forever and ever and ever. But if Jefferson and Adams were doing their thing today and Adams is on CNN and Jefferson's on Fox, Jefferson's interview is not going to be very memorable because he's just not that kind of guy. Jefferson would probably tell Jake Tapper, let, let me write down my answers for you. And they would be yeah. more eloquent than poetry. Is that, is that no. a, I mean, you see where I'm headed. No, and if, if, if they were alive today, Jefferson would probably be a good backbench congressman, sort of a, a good, a guy you'd want on the committee who could maybe draft the legislation and maybe give the questions to a Jim Jordan. Uh, he'd be probably very, very uncomfortable. John Adams, right, of course, you know, you the most dangerous spot in Washington would be between John Adams and a television camera. He'd throw you the elbow. But it, if you go back to when they're writing the Declaration of Independence, they're trying to hash out who should do it, and Jefferson says, no, you should do it, John Adams. And Adams says, no, you should do it, Thomas. Three reasons. One is a Southerner needs to be at the whole, at the helm of this. Adams then says, everybody knows who I am. Most people hate me. If it comes to me, it's not going to carry much weight. And then at the end, Adams says, you're a much greater writer than I am. And so that's why it must fall to you. And so Jefferson accepted it. Explain the complicated relationship that Adams and Jefferson had as best you can. Well, they were, again, the that served in the Continental Congress, worked together on the Declaration of Independence, sort of formed a friendship early on they had a they had a lot in common uh, had served abroad together uh, in diplomatic positions but were kind of kept bumping into each other in the 1780s once they get they're both back in America in the 1790s Jefferson is, is of course opposing the policies of Alexander Hamilton John Adams as vice president is kind of tied aligned with those policies so they begin to have uh, a bit of a, a drift and so what happens is eventually they're sworn political enemies uh, Adams wins the presidency in 1796, and because of a quirk in the Constitution, Jefferson is his vice president. And you'd think, all right, these are two guys who would serve together. They're gonna they're gonna find a way to to compromise. Uh, they go to a dinner party one night. Tensions escalate, and the president and the vice president walk out together. No Secret Service, just walking down the streets of Philadelphia. They come to a fork in a road, and you can't make this stuff up. Uh, they sort of bid each other adieu. Jefferson takes the left fork, being the more liberal member. Uh, John Adams, being more conservative, takes the right. You're talking about classical liberalism, not yeah. today's <laughs> modern <laughs> liberalism. <laughs> and they, they don't say another word for, to each other uh, until Adams is defeated, and he has to sort of hand over the keys to the car and the government to Thomas Jefferson. After that, they are essentially ostracized, and it's more than a decade where somebody finally says, maybe you guys ought to like try to reconnect. Uh, but they'll have a, a decade where they hardly, they don't have anything to do with one another, and they'll spend the rest of their lives, the last decade of their life, uh, writing letters, sort of rehashing, uh, making amends. And the Adams Jefferson's letters are one of the best collections we have. What, what do you make of those letters as a historian? I mean, to me, they're one of the most valuable artifacts yeah. of American history. Um, and and the, they, you know, the, the John Adams miniseries ends with them both dying July 4, 50 Same. years yeah. after yeah. the signing of the Declaration of Independence. I mean, I, I, I got to believe God's hands are, are in the middle of that. And I mean, most Americans at that time did too. Yeah, almost. I mean, you know, that that's just too 
that's just too weird too to be, yeah i mean uh, it's exactly so so as a historian what do you make of the letters that they shared one with another and how important is it for the american people to know how complicated their relationship was it's it's a great learning example these are two guys who started off as good friends had a falling out but yet in the end recognized they weren't apologized and said hey i'm sorry maybe i could have done this better and sort of rehashed out and talked about uh, the greatness the brilliance of the united states why we were founded uh what we were founded for then again they made amends to each other and of course as you noted right they die together uh, John Adams's last words, right? He says, Jefferson still lives. He was wrong. Jefferson had died a few hours before. But again, the idea that Jefferson still lives, everybody knows who Thomas Jefferson is. And John Adams has been sort of consigned to the dustbin of American history. Was Adams jealous of Jefferson's notoriety? Adams Adams was a very vain guy, very, very, very pompous. Uh, when he was inaugurated as president, Adams, like five feet, six inches tall, has a fancy linen suit on, and he's got a six-foot sword at his side, which he's kind of clanking about. And Jefferson and a lot of his flyers, this, this is what a monarch does. This, this isn't what we do in a republic. So Adams kind of fell into the, the trappings of the good life, and John Adams believed the ideal form of conversation was an argument. And whenever he got in the room, he wanted everybody to know he was the smartest guy in the room. Jefferson, very, very shy. Oh, Jefferson could play the game of the politician, maybe tell you what you wanted to hear, uh, and then maybe like double-cross you in the end. Adams was very confrontational, a bull in a china shop. Dr. Bolt, I want to ask you a personal question for a second. How important is it for you to be the conduit between American history, accurate and informative portrayal of American history, and, and, and our young people who many of our listeners don't believe get the full effect of where we come from, what we're about, some of our guiding principles, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Independence. I mean, how, how big a responsibility is that for someone like you who has the job to do of connecting young people to the founding of America? Well, it's my opinion belief. We're standing on the shoulders of great men and women throughout American history. They were willing to sacrifice their lives in the American Revolution. They put it all on the table. And then you thank God they did. I mean, we, who else in the world doesn't want what we have in America right now? Even on our worst day, and we've got some flaws, but we still have it so much better uh, than anybody else in the world. Again, it, it was a difficult process. There were a lot of bumps in the road. But again, this is just, uh, I, I love this country. I love talking about uh, why we were founded. Uh, when I was born, I was born right after the, the bicentennial. So growing up, there were always trinkets, memorabilia, lots of stuff with 1776 written on it. So it was kind of like ingrained uh, in my DNA from the very, very beginning. I had a, a love for the founding fathers, the early part of American history. I, I, I soak it up. I try and get as much uh, as I can. And I want people to be aware of it uh, as well. How receptive are young people today to hear these <laughs> stories? Maybe not as receptive as I like, but again, I got to hold them hostage, you know, for 50 minutes or now in 15 minutes. They I, need that credit. And then, and then when I say, hey, this is going to be on the test, they care a lot more uh, at that point. And if I say, all right, this is just an anecdote, humor me for five minutes, they pull the phone out and go to sleep. But again, if they say, hey, I might test you on this, then they'll, and, ho and I, I hope they retain it. Uh, they, they probably don't, but at least they've been experienced. They've been exposed to it. And I've had a lot of people 10 years later who say, hey, I remember a lot of the stuff. 
Uh, you told me in class. It was a Jeopardy question. And I said, hey, to my dad, I, I learned that in Bolt's class. So that helps out so Is much. there any episodes or stories that you find students pay closer attention to than others? I mean, American <laughs> politics is exciting at times and boring at other times. Yeah, no. Are there, are there, are there <laughs> things in, in early American? Because to me, it's the most exciting time. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, you're, 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 it's David Goliath, and you're, you're David. And you slay the, the giant. You know what I mean? There, there's so many. I mean, you're Rocky Balboa, and, and Great Britain is, you know, Apollo Creed. I mean, who expects Rocky Balboa to win that? I mean, that, that's an intriguing storyline. Yeah. But, but, but are, there, are there stories that you talk about that, that you think your students pay closer attention to? Well, you know, the old story, sex sells. So uh, Thomas Jefferson's sex scandal, sex affairs in history. Uh, that's when suddenly you see the, the heads pop up. <laughs> uh, they, they like they okay. like they like duels. The, if I kill somebody, well, I mean, that, I think good. what you're saying, the guy didn't write all the time. He yeah, wrote a lot of the time, but not all of the time. There were some other times in his life he was preoccupied. Sometimes that's the only thing they they would take away. You'll get an essay like discuss Thomas Jefferson. He had a uh, an affair with one of his slaves. <laughs> Something's better than nothing. I'll take <laughs> take what I can get. Good deal. Good deal. Hey, thank you for your Appreciate time. It, man. Thanks, I guys. hope our listeners find this um, informative. It's very different. I mean, it's very different than what normal conservative talk radio shows do. Um, we had a, an email yesterday, or a, was it a Facebook post? It says, stop giving Jeff so much time, uh, you know. And uh, but, but no, we, we hope that we, uh, <laughs> Friel says, I'll agree with that. Um, I, I just think talk radio has an opportunity to be um, the, the last bastion of independent critical thinking, and Dr. Bolt comes on. And um and kind of recount some of the um some of the history a lot of us don't know, and and I know you can say well I mean I know all that why is he on there saying it well I mean <laughs> a lot of people honestly and truly don't know it thanks a lot for your Appreciate time guys have a good week we'll take a break uh, you want to talk Buffalo Bills for a second oh man just stick that knife in <laughs> there, there are beatdowns then there's what happened to the okay Bills. okay here's the deal let, let me tell you what I think and I want to get your take on this big all Buffalo right. Bills fan grew up in Buffalo um they're too much of a one man team. Josh Allen is one of the three or four best quarterbacks in the league, yeah. but the, the other quarterbacks aren't demanded to win it on their own. Yeah. Allen seems to me to have to win games on his own. And they've got they've got Stephon Diggs, who's a very good receiver, but he's pretty much it. And you can just blanket him, double covered him, take him out of the game. And they're just and Bills had a couple of third and two, third and three, and what do they do? They throw they throw a forty yard bomb. <laughs> very questionable. And the Bills defense when Cincinnati had a third and two. The DBs are ten yards off the guy. They don't want to give it the big play, so Burrow takes the, it takes what he gives him, and it's a very efficient game. And again, they could line up and play that game ten times. I don't know if the Bills win. I, I kind of agree with that. One. It looked to I mean, me early was, on that Cincinnati yes, was just a better team, out coached, out manned, yeah. out gunned. Just and but, the Bills hadn't been beaten bad all year. They, the only time they lost, it came down to the final possession, and just everything, offense, defense, special teams. Nobody showed up. Blame just, it on the snow. So, yeah. Wait, if Buffalo here, you want snow. That's <laughs> supposed to help you out. Yeah, but it didn't. Thank God, you, sir. No. Thanks, guys. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few. I don't know if you saw this or not, but the founder of Amazon, Jeff Bezos, is thinking about selling the Washington Post to buy the Washington hmm, Redskins. Um, they're still the Redskins as far as I'm concerned. I understand they're called the Mighty Commodores now, right? Are they? Yeah. Yeah. Is it the commandeer? What was the commanders? The commanders. Commanders. Yeah, instead of the mighty commodores. Yeah. Um, but uh, but Amazon. <laughs> I saw a story yesterday afternoon about Amazon adding uh, a generic prescription benefit to all of its Prime users. 
And it kind of led me down the road. I mean, one article leads to another and another and another. And, uh, you know, Google and YouTube read your mind. Um, and, they, you know, they, they know do. what you may want to read um, next. But, but, but today they're formally announcing this new prescription benefit for their prime members. And they're trying to do this to boost subscriptions, um, attract users. They've had this pharmacy service that is not performed as well as they expected it to. And it, it kind of is called RX Pass, if I'm not mistaken. Um, it will allow Prime members, I'll read the CNBC article. It will allow Prime members to get as many drugs as they need from a list of 50 generic medications to treat more than 80 common chronic conditions, high blood pressure, anxiety, diabetes. The service will cost $5 a month and delivery is free. So it's to, it's kind of a disruption in the world of healthcare. And it led me to believe, Reb, that, um, I mean, Amazon, Microsoft, Facebook, Twitter, all of these technology companies. I mean, I understand Amazon's in the retail business, but it's still a technology company. I mean, you know, how can we get that stuff to your front door quicker than anybody else and more affordable than anybody else? Uh, once again, a couple of years ago, they launched their own, um, their own O-W-N, online O-N, um, pharmacy service and, um, and they, they acquired a couple of other online prescription, excuse me, yeah, online prescription um, services. But if anything happens in healthcare to, you know, advantage the consumer, it's going to be technology related. It's going to be telehealth. It's going to be online prescription services. And I'm a little encouraged that Amazon, I know what they're after. They're after the bottom line. I mean, I'm not naive. I'm not misled about any of their intent. It's not to keep you healthier. I mean, Amazon's not in the business of making sure you're cared for. What? They're in the business of making a buck. But if they can make a buck and save you a buck and disrupt some of the um, some of the normalcies of our healthcare market, I think that's a good day and a good thing. And it seems to me that some of these tech companies see a lot of money floating around. I mean, uh, the healthcare economy is 20% of our GDP. I mean, it's about 9 10 8% in most other developed nations. So healthcare dollars or healthcare spending consumes about twice the percentage of our GDP, GDP as it does other developed nations. Why? Well, that's too much money being wasted, too much money being made, too many people getting rich. I mean, I don't know what the reasons are, but, but you can't say we're doing it as you know efficiently as other nations are. The outcomes aren't that much better. There was a day in history you could say the best healthcare in America Excuse me, the best healthcare in the world is in America. I don't know that you can say that today. I mean, I think there's some other models, Scandinavian models in particular, that show outcomes being significantly uh, better than American outcomes. But but it's encouraging to me anytime a company like Amazon delves into the healthcare industry because they disrupt it, they change the norm. They now now once again, they're not doing it to provide better healthcare. They're doing it to cannibalize some of the 20% of GDP we spend on health care. But if you can get a better deal in your prescriptions by being a prime member, why wouldn't you want to be a prime member? I'm not endorsing their plan. I don't know enough about their plan. Newsflash, full disclosure, I take zero medications. I mean, today, you know, I'm thankful for that. I'm fortunate that I've not had an ailment. I think you're one of the few. Well, I mean, I probably am, but I do a decent job of uh, personally taking care of myself. You know that. Mm -hmm. You know how um, obsessive I can be about <laughs> certain things at certain at certain times. I mean, I can be. I, a, I just say committed. You know, I mean, committed, <laughs> stubborn, you know, um, 
weird would probably be <laughs> would probably yeah, be a better way uh, to to explain it. But but as Amazon, you know, pushes deeper into the healthcare sector, um, you got to believe there's some savings to be had. In other words, instead of giving the former model a hundred dollars, you, you might give this disruptive model fifty dollars, and that's a better day. What what I'm concerned about or interested in is let's say that these tech companies take a bigger presence in healthcare. And the percentage of GDP that healthcare absorbs goes from 20% to 12%. In other words, we're providing the same quality service. We're writing the same prescriptions. Um, Amazon's doing it by, by the millions where the local pharmacy or the, the local Walgreens or, or CVS is doing it by the, the hundreds of thousands. I don't know. I mean, I don't have any idea how effective this disruption will be. But Amazon has the capital to, to kind of um, force change in a marketplace that I think drastically or dramatically um, needs changing. J.D. Vance and Donald Trump said yesterday, a little bit talking about disruption, and um, J.D. Vance and Donald Trump said yesterday, uh, Trump said it first, Vance said, I agree 100%, that we can't monkey around with Social Security. And when I look at Amazon and health care and I look at prescription benefits, I think of Medicare and, um, you know, the cost of Medicare, how long people are living today, how much money we're spending to care for people that live longer than they ever have. Um, we don't have enough set aside. We've lived out of Medicare funding. We've, um, we've, we've you know, basically robbed from the Social Security um, trust fund. But, but this may be the answer. I mean, this may be the answer to making health care more affordable as allowing companies that aren't normally in health care to be in. Take a break. Back in a minute. Okay, remember the conversation we had last week about Queen. Were they one of the most diverse rock and roll bands? One of the most eclectic rock and roll bands in history? The three of us agreed at varying levels that they were one of the most unique. We, we, it began with Sting being unreplicable, right? Right. I mean, uh, your guy, what's his name? Beato. Rick, Rick Beato. Rick Beato says YouTube. Sting is unreplicable. You can't duplicate what Sting does. We agreed, I think, to some degree. Freehold, jump in here now. This is kind of your field of expertise. Um, that Sting's arranging, excuse me, that Queen's arranging of music combined with Freddie Mercury's vocal diversity created a sound unlike just about anybody we'd ever heard. And they did it in a variety of styles. The arranging, the yes. producing, I mean, they, they were unbelievably trend-setting 
and, and the way they did things. Is that fair, Freehold? You would agree to that? Yes. Um, but when we look at it, we have to look at it as far as stuff that was good because, I mean, in the 60s, there was a ton of experimental stuff okay. that was just awful. So if we're looking at it, was at called it, acid yeah, and LSD. Exactly. But continue. <laughs> yeah. So if we're looking at it as far as stuff that really worked, yes, then we can. You know, kind of, and the doors too. I mean, the doors were doing some Jim Morrison yeah. and the door. Okay, but you would agree to this, Freehold. Queen did it and gained commercial success. Yeah. That's, okay. That's what I was like getting to, like uh, as far as stuff that worked. A lot of the other bands that tried that just didn't gain commercial success. Um, I would argue Freddie Mercury's vocals is kind of what led to wow, dude can sing. I mean, he can really, really, really sing, and they've got this weird arrangement, a weird way of of doing things. Ought we agreed? That the Beatles had two of the musical geniuses of our generation on, you know, in their prime, um, Lennon and McCartney. I mean, th- those two guys. We've agreed that Springsteen's E Street Band is one of the greatest house bands, quote unquote, ever. What about the Stones? I mean, we're talking about Queen. We're talking about Sting. We're talking about McCartney and Lennon. We're talking about the E Street. What about this? What What about the Stones makes them the the, the greatest and most? Let's say this. What we can debate. Great. I mean, greats. You know, who's the greatest of all time? I mean, a hundred people to have a right. hundred different opinions. It's hard to argue this. I'm thinking about it the best way to say it. The Stones have been the most durable rock and roll band <laughs> in history. They're still at it. I mean, they're, they're still at it. And if they played a show near you and you're a fan of rock and roll, you'd probably figure out a way to get a ticket to go say, hey, man, I saw the Stones in 2023 when Keith Richards was 117 <laughs> years old. And Mick Jagger was 109 or whatever, whatever their ages are. So what is it about the Stones, Rev? I mean, we, we've, we've, we've noticed certain characteristics about some of the other iconic acts. And I think we're talking about you too as well. That's you right. know, being one of the stadium bands, one of these um, great rock and roll showmen. With the like social Bono. conscience. W- w- that's right. With a, a, an awareness of the world around them and a commitment to write and sing about the world around them. What, what is it about the Stones that, that makes them so durable i think that a lot of people if not most people if you asked who's the greatest rock and roll band of all time stones would be who they say how could they not be i mean how how could you and and it's obviously it's longevity it's hits it's anthems i mean i can't get live satisfaction it's still it's live shows and still doing live shows after all these decades all of those ingredients but but if you would have asked somebody that question back in the 80s, who's the greatest rock band of all time, they probably would have said the Stones. Yeah, but but think of this. So, so when you think musical genius, I mean, there's some musical genius to Freddie Mercury and the guy that um did a lot of the Queen arranging. What was it? Brian, Brian May. May. Brian May. I mean, he was a nuclear physicist, mind you. So, so there was some genius there. There's some genius to Lennon and McCartney. There's some genius to Bono and U2. There's some genius to Springsteen and E Street. There doesn't seem to be much genius <laughs> to Richards and and um and Mick Jagger. Am I wrong? <laughs> and I mean, maybe they, that's the genius. Well, I mean, maybe that's the genius. The the fact that they don't, you know, profess to try and change the world, but rather put on rock and roll shows and have done it longer than anybody I could ever imagine has done it. Eight four three. I mean, I don't know. That's just when I hear the Stones playing, I'm hearing the greatest rock and roll band ever, and I'm asking myself, why is Queen? not the greatest rock band ever why is the beatles i mean the beatles broke up they probably would have been uh why is uh, you know why is youtube why are the stones better than all of those other bands why have they been more durable than all of those other bands and you know i think you might have nailed it because they've never tried to be anything other than 
a rock and roll band. And they've been successful at it for so long. Uber, uber successful. And, and if you were to argue, again, the subjective argument, who's the greatest rock and roll band of all time, I would just ask, who better than the Stones? Who could you sell me on being better than the Rolling Stones? They're certainly the most durable, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> that's a, they're certainly. That's, that's I mean, a, the, a the great long, way to put it. The longevity of career is certainly um, in their corner. 843 six six one oh nine three seven we always love music i mean that's one thing the three of us have um have in common we we enjoy now you've got your favorites i've got mine i know our listeners have theirs i mean i'm not here to say hey my guy's the greatest that's ever been because um i mean i you know but but to say the stones if if you're listing the three rock the three greatest rock and roll bands ever and the rolling stones aren't in your top three then you're just trying to be an antagonist i mean you're just trying to be a contrarian uh, to the nth degree. I, I saw them twice, by the way. Saw them in Raleigh and saw them in Columbia. I saw them in Clemson uh, back in the day. Yeah. Uh, they got to be good for me to have fun in Death Valley. <laughs> and I did. I mean, it was an outdoor concert in Death Valley, and they were, I mean, as good as you would expect them um, to be. And I think that was the 13th year that Keith Richards was on the 10 most likely people to die <laughs> that year. I think he's been on that list for 31 or 32 consecutive years, but he's still kicking and, uh, and playing rock and roll music. So um, I want to go to two numbers, and these numbers are interesting to me. That There's a sad commentary in both of these numbers, 77 and 44. That's not a Chicago song, is it? <laughs> no, uh, you're thinking of 25 <laughs> or 64. <laughs> 77 and 64. That is the um, – is somebody on the phone? Mm-hmm. Let's go there. Yeah, and then we'll come back and um and touch on this. We've actually had a lot of people trying to call and the calls were dropping for some reason. Not sure what's up with that. But we have Ashley in Poston's Corner. Hello, Ashley. I see there is an issue. Okay. We're having some phone problems. Yeah. That really irks me to know, no end because I when I see the lights flashing through the glass and I see Freehold answer the phone, I shift gears from running my mouth to kind of um, teeing it up, setting it up for you to begin running your mouth. But we're apparently having yeah. some issues with the phone. Thank you, Spectrum. You're mm-hmm. uh, you're always there, there we for go us again. when we need you best. Can I get sued for that? <laughs> well, if it's true. Hey, I got a, I got a bone to pick. You ready? Mm-hmm. I mean, th- th- this is something that irks me a lot, and it just kind of dawned on me that I need to make a public pronouncement about this. Um, I understand when you go to a restaurant and things aren't as they should have been or things aren't as you expected them to be. You didn't get enough food. The food was cold. The service sucked. I would discourage you from putting that on Facebook. I mean, as a, as a business owner who associates with a lot of other business owners, give them a chance to make it right. I mean, if they blew it, and, and, and the restaurants in particular right now are short-staffed. I mean, they, you know, they can't get their employees to show up because the government says, basically, we'll pay you to not come to work. I mean, we've neutered work ethic. I mean, we've obliterated. And and this really is one of the principles of American society and culture that I think we're going to deeply regret one day. And I get it. I mean, I understand the heat of the moment. And it feels good to well, I mean, get I, it out I, there, sure I guess, it does. Right? I mean, you're disappointed. You want to let other people yeah, know how disappointed you were. But but I, I just think you owe the business owner an opportunity to right that wrong. Um, restaurants in particular. Or having an issue with with workers, and and you know I've got friends in the restaurant business. I am a small small percentage owner of a restaurant, um, and I know the struggle. I hear the struggle. I don't live it because I'm a passive investor. 
but but I know the problems and issues that they're dealing with every single day as they try to encourage people to come to work. I mean, imagine that, encouraging people to come to work, um, incentivizing people to come to work by something other than a paycheck. But but that's where we are. And, and you know, COVID allowed people to make more money not working than they did going to work. And and was there an adjustment necessary in meaning? And I, don't, I don't know. Um, you know, the, the, um, the unskilled worker, were we, you know, taking as seriously their skills? You know, there's a fair debate there. But I just don't understand why someone is compelled to, to take a, you know, a reputable business that has a bad day and just, you know, expose them to that sort of criticism. Um, put yourself in their shoes. I mean, you're running a business. You're crossing your fingers every day, hoping that your people come to work. And when they do, you know, you hope they're motivated to do a good job. Some are, some are not. But, but I, I just, I would encourage anybody listening to the show, don't put it on Facebook. You know, call the owner, ask for the manager, try to make it right there. I mean, I guess there's some point in time when they refuse to make it right or just don't yeah, care. At what point? Is, yeah, I mean, at what point is it okay to do that? I, I just, I mean, it bothers me a lot because I know these people. I'm a business owner. I know for a fact that businesses I am associated with have gotten it wrong more than one time. We try to make it right when we get it wrong. We don't always make it right. News flash. For some people, you ain't going to make it right because they come into the restaurant looking for some reason to be critical or, you know, yeah, to get a free meal. I mean, let's be honest. Some people, that's their strategy. Hmm. They want to get one of our every, you know, seven or eight or nine or ten free meals. Um, I mean, in, in, in the business I'm associated with, you know, the steak wasn't done enough. But the steak's gone. There's nothing but the bone <laughs> left. I mean, it wasn't done enough. Okay. Um, here's a coupon because one happy customer is, is um, uh, a, a lot more valuable than one unhappy one is um, detrimental uh, to the cause. Is somebody on the phone now? Yeah, well, we're going to try to get to Ashley here, see if the phone will hold up this time. Hello, Ashley. Hey, good morning, fellas. Can y'all hear me okay? Yes, sir. Yep. We got you now, finally. Good, good, good. Um, I got a comment slash question for you. Uh, comment is, is I think that uh, South Carolinians need to get better about choosing candidates who are more serious about helping out South Carolina. You have a House member last week that wants to do a bust of, of the Ukrainian president. And this week we got a senator in Lindsey Graham heading over to Ukraine, and he pleads. He's calling on South Carolinians to help with the process of stopping Vladimir Putin. Now, what in the hell does either one of those things benefit South Carolina? And I'll... That's my question, and I'll take it off there. Thank you, Ashley. Appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, Joe Wilson, I mean, that that's surprising to me. I mean, I don't understand the logic behind wanting to put a bust up. We're talking about Adams and Madison and Jefferson and Hamilton. I mean, those, those guys have their fingerprints all over America. I mean, they certainly deserve to be recognized. Now, let's recognize them in their totality. Jefferson was not the perfect man. Adams, Franklin, Madison, I mean, they were not the perfect men. There were a lot of frailty and imperfections, and we should account for all of that. Um, when you name a school after Thomas Jefferson, let's have a discussion about the totality of the man. I mean, he was a slave owner. He was a philanderer. I mean, there, there are a lot of things about Jefferson. You could argue at times in his life he was somewhat of an alcoholic. 
but but he was very instrumental in our nation's founding. He was very instrumental in the values and the principles of which we have ascribed to these many, many years. So let's have a debate about some of these personalities and issues. But Zelensky in Ukraine, I mean, to even consider building a bust or a monument in his honor in Washington is absurd. Forget globalism. Forget expansionism. Forget the Cold War for just a second. Here's what we can debate, and here's what I wish we would debate. We can debate whether or not Ukraine's interest is America's interest. I mean, you're nodding your head. I think you agree to that. I'll admit readily that I'm more nationalist than I've ever been. But convince me. Convince me. I mean, let's have a debate. It's a little bit like the vaccine. Um, the, The one thing that, and I know you listeners get frustrated, but the one thing I think Jeff and I do is demonstrate an ability to be disagreeable. I mean, I don't know that Jeff's ever yelled at me. I called Jeff a socialist one day, but I don't, I don't think I've ever I've ever yelled at him or mistreated anybody. He has a worldview that deserves respect. I think it's wrong. I think it's dangerous. He probably thinks to some degree that my worldview is wrong and dangerous. But we can be disagreeable, and he can have you know a set of criteria he argues on, and I can do the same. So if we've got an expansionist senator in Lindsey Graham, Let's allow Lindsay to debate. I'd love to have Lindsay come on this radio show for an hour and allow him, not in a combative form, but allow him to articulate why he thinks it's of that much importance to invest that much American prosperity in Ukraine. Maybe I'm wrong. Convince me, Lindsay. I mean, he's, he's far more versed in that world than I am. He's far more informed about what the realities are. But the media's made its mind up that the Ukrainian people are heroic, that they're standing in defiance of Vladimir Putin and Russia expansion, Um, maybe they are. And if they are, more power to the Ukrainians. But what is my obligation as an American taxpayer? That's all I'm interested in. Do, Do I care about the world around me? Of course I do. Am I aware of the world around me? Of course I am. But what is my obligation to the Ukrainians? I mean, is it to give prayerful consideration or is it to fund the military? I mean, as as a follower of Christ, I think I have a humanistic obligation to my fellow man who are being oppressed or attacked anywhere around the world. But but as an American taxpayer, there's kind of a there's a a proportionality. I, I I will devote as much of my my prayerful energy to to believing that Ukraine wants their sovereignty, wants their independence, and deserve that. But as an American taxpayer and citizen and, 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 you know, I guess to some degree a political pundit, where does that stop? And and when, when Lindsey says we're not doing our patriotic duty if we don't agree to fund further, you know, um, the defiance of Putin and, and to thwart an attack by, I just don't buy that. Why, why aren't we allowed to have a debate? I think Tucker Carlson is somebody very interesting in this. Tucker and I kind of sort of see the world the same way. I mean, he tells a much larger, a larger audience how he sees the world th- than I do. But but I've listened to Tucker for a long time, and I think he's always had this kind of an anti-interventionist, anti-globalist streak about him. In fact, you know who defended Tucker about six months ago? Rachel Maddow. Rachel Maddow was asked at one of these symposiums where the important people gather to comment on Tucker Carlson and his extreme views on globalism and intervention. And Manow said, I know Tucker. I've known Tucker a long time. 
this is kind of where he's always been. He's always been somewhat on the fringe at the weekly standard of where the Republican Party needs to be in matters involving expansion, expansion to Russia or communist China. And, and, and once again, I think I can be as patriotic as Lindsey Graham is and still defy that we need to be as involved as Lindsey thinks we do in, in Ukraine. But I want to have that debate. Rez said it convinced me. Convince me that I'm wrong. Give me an opportunity to convince you that you're wrong. We went a year saying that, that Ukraine's about to win. Forget holding on to territories. Forget reorganizing the way Ukraine looks. Ukraine is about to win the war against Russia. And all of a sudden now, it's if we don't give them this last batch of tanks, the people are going to be slaughtered and the nation obliterated. Well, who, I mean, which is true? And if one was true at one point in time and another is true now, tell us, explain us, allow us to have this debate. That's what the political establishment does not want to happen. They don't want to debate on COVID. They don't want to debate on vaccines. They don't want to debate on spending. They don't want to debate on taxes. Why? Because they believe they lose the debate. Why aren't we debating Twitter and the FBI? We probably will because Jim Jordan and Representative Comer are going to kind of lead investigations into judiciary and oversight, but let's have a debate. We're starting to hear words now like cover-up and, and criminal activities with the, with the body. I mean, that, that's the most interesting dynamic that has happened it in was, this. It was chilling yesterday. If you saw the, I guess, the White House press conference where Peter Ducey asked the uh, spokesperson, is the president involved in a cover-up? And she just, well, she, I mean, she just... The, the only answer there is no. Right. She should there's, say, no. there's two words. She was like, um, uh, mm, uh, mm. Well, here, here's what. I mean, if, if I'm working for the president, it doesn't matter what the truth is right now. I mean, we'll get to the bottom of that. But but if, if somebody asked me from the press corps, I mean, once again, guys, let, let me quantify this. I'm a college dropout from a town with no stoplight. Take what I say for what it's worth. But if I'm the press secretary and somebody asked me if the president is involved in a cover-up, and I'm working for the president, my answer is, hell no. Of course not. That has to be the answer. But but she didn't give that answer. I mean, the black lesbian said, well, I mean, you know, I don't, I don't know what he is. And, and, you know, we'll refer to you to the, um, to the, uh, to the Department of Justice and, you know, the, the FBI and, you know, our team at the White House. Or, no. And, and all of a sudden, the word cover-up. It's becoming a larger part of, I mean, I think we find out at some point in time there was a cover-up. But but you've got to deny, 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 because you work for the guy who's politically in harm's way as we speak. You call it what you'd like. I call it politics. And that does not help when you no, answer questions not like that. at all. Take a break. Back in a moment. I'd rather see us focus our attention on whipping the Chinese than I had preserving the Ukrainians. I mean, that's a very simpleton <laughs> worldview. But I'm telling you guys, some of the most, some of the best ideas are the most simple ideas. Um, I, I've told Rev this story. I won't tell that story because it, it'll be too obvious who it's about. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. <laughs> Barry in Sherall. Remember, Barry? Hey, good morning, guys. Hey, Ken, can we recall Lindsey Graham? Huh. I, I don't know. I mean, you know, I would just advise you, if you're that frustrated with Lindsey, beat, beat him at the ballot box. I mean, and, and I've heard this, Barry. I mean, I was in politics in 2004. I heard people then say the same things they're saying now, and nobody's come close to beating him. But it's a machine, Ken. 
it's a machine in South Carolina. Well, I don't, I don't disagree with any of that. I mean, the machine went after you. I don't disagree with that. <laughs> okay. So, so I, what I'm trying to get, he's not talking for any of us. I, I don't know one person that supports this policy. Not one person. I could call a person in Charleston right now, right? They don't support it. Lindsey's talking for himself because here's a coward that, that it was in the Air Force that flew in on the 29th of every month and flew out on the 1st. You know why he did that, Ken? Because he wanted that tax break for combat pay. That's what he would do. He would get on the C-17 out of Charleston, fly on the 28th, and then fly back out of country on the 1st. You get a tax break for that for the first month and, and the next month. So this coward, this freaking loser, Lindsey Graham, is, is getting us in a kinetic war with freaking Russia. We'll, it will be nuclear if we do go there. And, and he doesn't care because he has no kids. He probably has pictures, but he doesn't have any kids, right? And, he, and he's breaking America to get us in this war with Russia. There, there, there's something up there, and we all know he's in with the Uniparty, and, and I can't stand it, Ken. This dude is ridiculous. He, he, he makes South Carolina freaking a joke on a national level, and I'm sick of it. I'm going to recall his sorry tale. <laughs> Thank you, Barry. I appreciate really that. 843 <laughs> I mean, I have a very complicated – I mean, I don't have a relationship with Lindsey. I mean, I did when I was in Columbia. We spoke occasionally and, and talked about certain things, and there were a few things I agreed with Lindsey on. Uh, Lindsey and I don't see the world the same way. I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm somewhat of a well, – I mean, I'm, I'm an America first Republican. I mean, I'll admit my stance on anti-globalism, but I'll accept there's a fair debate. I mean, I'm an anti-interventionist Republican, but I'll admit there's a fair debate to be had about Ukraine. Convince me – I think Rev said it earlier – convince me – that it's in America's best interest to a large degree to be as involved in Ukraine, not as we are, but as Lindsay desires us to be. But but once again, and I'll say this, guys, I think there's some mystique to Lindsay. And I think Lindsay plays on some of that mystique. He's the misunderstood man of South Carolina politics, right? I mean, Barry doesn't really know what Lindsay believes in or stands for. I don't really know what Lindsay believes in or stands for. I mean, the same Lindsey Graham that blasted the Democrats. And the Kavanaugh process is the same one that now wants to further involve American troop and prosperity in Ukraine. Once again, guys, I'm not arguing to forget what's happening in Ukraine. I'm not arguing to, to it's a no-brainer to do what Yunkin did in, in Virginia. These are complicated matters. We just don't seem to be interested in having the debate necessary to decide and understand some of these complications. I mean, it's not as easy as Yunkin may make it sound in Virginia. You got 2,500 jobs, a $3.5 billion investment. You got Pennsylvania, which is Danville, Virginia. That's a challenged area of that state as it relates to um, economic activity. So, but, but we don't have these debates in America anymore. And that's all I'm saying. I don't have all the answers on globalism or not. I don't have all the answers on intervention or not. I don't have all the answers on debt. On, on health care, but we're not interested in having the debate because I think the debate will require people to admit that they may be wrong on some of these preconceived notions that the uniparty, and I do believe in the uniparty. I mean, I absolutely believe that the Joe Manchin you see on Meet the Press, 
the Lindsey Graham you see on Fox News are very different people at lunch on a Tuesday night in Washington. I absolutely believe that. Let's go to the phone. Jeff and Florence. Morning, Jeff. Good morning. Jeff, my listeners say three minutes and 27 seconds (laughs) is your um, allocation of time today. Sure. Good deal. That last (laughs) caller described Lindsey Graham better than anybody I've ever heard. Um, He he is a leech that will attach himself to any butt (laughs) that will carry him upstream. Um, So... As far as Yunkin goes with the battery deal, do you know how Yunkin made his money? Carlisle Capital, about $400 million, yeah. and the majority was on private equity raised in China. So let's just ball him up and throw him in the trash. Well, I said earlier, I mean, it's <laughs> nice to say um, I'm opposed to communist China after I've gotten more $400 million. Yeah, and, and Rick Scott in Florida, do you know how he made his money? Uh, a lot of globalism. No, Medicare fraud. Well, you're right. He had the sing- single largest Medicare fraud case committed against the U.S. taxpayer, and Rick Scott made over uh, $300 million off it. Um, I-, I wanted to talk to you about, like, the Ukraine thing. So it- it's a complex issue. You know, when this started going down and Russia was aligning its uh, allies, there's no doubt that China was one of those allies. And, and Iran is one of those allies, and North Korea is one of those allies. But if you look at China's state of affairs now, you can see that the U.S. and the Ukrainian and NATO is making China pull back, and it's isolating, you know, that relationship. So, well, I don't want to ever send troops Sending resources is kind of breaking up that cabal, and that's that's not a bad thing for the U.S., is it? I don't disagree with that, but, Jeff, I, I hope you'll agree with me when I say, why have we become so dependent on the relationship between China and Russia? In other words, we need to sever the relationship between China and Russia because we've not done a good job of exploring alternate. I mean, I, I talked earlier this morning that, while we're talking about the advent of the electric car and we're trying to evolve into a uh, less of the internal combustion engine, more of the battery-powered vehicle, China's got mining rights to 37% of 75% of the available lithium. Why aren't we doing that? I mean, I'll, I'll agree with what you say about Ukraine, that there is no question that America needs to be very sensitive to the geopolitical relationship between Russia and China. There is no doubt about that. Which is more anti-America, China or Russia? I don't know. But boy, we know yeah, that China has a burning... Well, I mean, you're right. But I mean, I don't... I'll, I'll be interested in your opinion here. I don't think Russia today has the ability to be a ge- geopolitical adversary like China does. I mean, economically, China is much more a threat to, to, to your kids, my kids, the next hundred years of American prosperity, but it seems to me that instead of investing in things that allow us to be more independent, energy-related, our debt's a big issue, we're, we're, we're pumping money that we don't have into a place that, yeah, it has our interests at heart. But but why not prioritize? Why not invest in certain things that allow us to be more independent of energy, of, of our, our, our debt, are. sir? Well, I mean, you say we are, but we're not doing it to the extent that, that China is. How does China have mining rights to 27% of the 75% of titanium in the world. Why does America not have that? 
China does. So, so where where are those mines, Ken? They're in Brazil, Argentina. Uh, what's the, uh, so, yeah, there's some in Africa, but I think there's three countries that they believe, and I'm talking about some of the, some of the general, so, some of the geologists in the world believe there are more lithium, there's more lithium to be mined in this lithium triangle that includes Brazil. Um, it's three countries down there. I'll try to figure it out. Argentina, Argentina, Bolivia, Argentina. but it's, it's Argentina, yeah. Bolivia and, um, and Brazil. That's true. Right. So, so again, you go back to the Cold War model, and, and, and this is what it is. This is the Cold War for natural resources, right? You have an economic superpower developing in China, um, and you have the United States, the world market. Right? Basically, we drive the global engine of the world market. So we are competing for those resources. But just like in World War II, when you had the Germans, they couldn't do it. They threatened the European theater. They needed allies or or their, they needed Japan to get into the war to start World War II. China knows that they need Russia. They need proxies, okay, to, to help to, to take America's eye off the ball or try to, if you will. So Russia is threatening Europe. Europe's a big part of the United States, whether we like to admit it or not. I mean, we are, we are hand in glove with them. And so it, it's, it, it's, it's a chess match. And we look at it as giving money away, and, and you talked about investing in the U.S., which we are, incredibly. Um, there's tons of plants going up. We're investing in Europe also. There are tons of plants going up that will depend on China to provide the titanium, or the lithium. I'm sorry, no, the lithium. We're, we're, we're getting contracts also. Don't, don't, you know, we are getting contracts. We six, have six of the ten largest EV battery manufacturing companies are owned by China. That's right. And if they build a plant in the United States, what happens to that plant if we go to war? You tell it me. Shuts down and we take it. We take it. Instead of building plants in China, we're building them here. But we're not building them here, Jeff, because six of the ten largest yes, EV battery. Well, I mean, we're dependent upon well, you know, the, the Ford plant. I mean, it's, it's a collaboration between Ford and the Chinese government. China will and, and, own the technology in the plant of 30. I mean, the Yunkin situation is, is Ford is collaborating with a company called Contemporary Amperex Technology, or CATL. They will own the technology that the new Ford electric vehicle is based on. I mean, let, let's, was Foxconn building a plant in, in, in supposedly they were going to build a but, plant? But, uh, did, but, but the equivalency argument doesn't matter to me. You're, you're saying we're investing in technology, and we are. But we're investing in technology dependent on the Chinese Communist government being a large part of it. That puts, well, I mean, I'll, to I'll me, that's not way. in America's best interest. Yeah, I'll put it to you this way. Would you rather have a U.S. company, Ford, invest money in a battery plant in China if we do get an engagement, if they go after Taiwan, they kick Ford out. Or would you rather have the plant in the United States where we kick the Chinese out? But I'll go a step past that, Jeff. Why does China own the mining rights to 75% of the world's lithium deposits? Capitalism. But they're it's not, they're, they're a communist nation. But, but aren't you agreeing they, but that they, the communists are beating us at capitalism? Absolutely, they are because they don't play fair. They're they're a, they have a slave workforce. They they don't follow trade laws, but 
we're we've designated them as a capitalist partner. And by by admitting in them in 2001 to the World Trade Organization, we legitimized slave labor. We, we legitimized you know whatever it is communist China would would decide to do. But but the the Ford plant in Virginia, Michigan, or wherever it ends up being located will be. I mean, the the, the Chinese will own the technology that Ford so depends on to make the project viable. Yeah, and once the plant's built here, hey, <laughs> kick China out. One, one quick thing I wanted to ask your opinion on. Okay. Um, what do you think about this FBI agent uh, that was put in charge of Hillary Clinton's investigation in New York, uh, arrested for, um, you know, basically this guy has worked with Russian oligarchs and in Moscow, basically, uh, this this one FBI agent, Comey, put in charge of the Hillary Clinton investigation. He was also put in charge of investigating the connections between the Trump uh, administration or Trump's campaign and Russia. He was working with the same oligarch that Paul Manafort owed millions of hundreds, uh, I think tens of millions of dollars to. I mean, is there anything there? I mean, I think there is. You're talking about Charles, what's the name? McGonagall? Yeah. Yeah, Charles McGonagall. Yeah. I mean, you can't make it up. I mean, the guy in charge yeah. of investigating whether or not political figures in America are colluding with Russia was colluding with <laughs> Russia and being paid large sums of money uh, on behalf if of Russia. Hey, Jeff, got to take a break. Appreciate your call. Um, that's far longer than three minutes, 27 seconds. We'll have to make it up to our conservative-minded <laughs> listeners here in just a moment. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Someone on the phone. Let's go there. Jamie, good morning. <clears throat> good morning, fellas. Um, you know, I'm glad you brought Lindsey up. You know, I, I can't stand him, and I know he pulled me in when he supported Trump. But the, I think this will be the only thing I agree with Jeff is that um, Lindsey is like a parasite. He'll cling to something to carry him upstream. My thought is, Ken, why doesn't Nikki consider um, running against Lindsey? Um, I know she wants to um, run for the presidency, but I think she wants the trappings that come with that, like you've said. Um, you know, she's not going to be able to win it. Um, but I think she's the only one that could really give Lindsey a run for his money. I think that, I think the South Carolina people would get behind her. And she would be very prevalent in future politics. Can you tell me what you think about that? Thank you, Jam. Appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, I just think Lindsay, I think Nikki has her eye on a bigger prize in the U.S. Senate. I think once you are a member of a presidential administration, you're a United Nation, uh, you're what the ambassador to the United Nations, you've been appointed by the president, you've been in meetings in the Oval Office. Um, I'm not saying running for the Senate's a demotion. Because the, the U.S. Senate is a, a very powerful political body Pretty in America today. Club a very exclusive club. Now, here's the deal with Lindsey. You ready? Nikki's not the only Republican that could beat Lindsey. I mean, I think there are a handful of Republicans that could beat Lindsey. I think Trey Gowdy, if he were to decide to run again, could beat Lindsey. I think Jeff Duncan in the upstate could probably be beat Lindsey. I'll give you a weird name. I think Mark Sanford, former governor of South Carolina. If Mark really? wanted to get back in politics, I think Mark could run and win against Lindsey Graham. Lindsey's done a phenomenal job of keeping quality candidates off the field. Um, I don't know how he's done that. I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story. Um, Thomas Ravenel was going to give Lindsey a real good run for his money. 
and T-Rab ended up in prison. Um, so, so there's some, you know, there, there's some hardball playing there. Um, well, well, you know, I mean, I, I'll say this on the air. I don't think I'll get game. accused of being dishonest here. Um, Thomas had a problem. I mean, t- Thomas was a drug user. He was not a drug dealer. And I still believe, and I'll say this, probably should, but I, I think there were things about that in Thomas's life that were because he had a chance to become a U.S. senator. There. I'll stop there before I get myself in trouble. <laughs> Good point. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.